In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1807 to 1820. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1807. Story number one. Call Jimmy and the General. Written by Upgrade... Well, the Krabbies ate my arm. I took that personally. Cole flexed his robotic skeletal hand. The actuators groaned with what seemed like malevolence. Got me during a reload. Had to switch to my knife, he continued. That's when I realized that you don't have to stop to reload if all your bullets are already in the gun. He tapped the side of his head with his finger. Cole tossed back the rest of his coffee. I ran with a 12-gauge drum mag for a while, but once I found the general, I considered the problem solved. I admired the human greatly, standing two meters to my one and a half. He easily outweighed me by three times. I preferred my fine fur to his bare skin, but I have to admit, it made it easier to read their expressions in spite of their interspecies boundaries. Revenge is as good a reason as any to keep working, I suppose. Since we lost their homeworld, those assholes have mostly disappeared. Sometimes we see signs of them out and here in the periphery. What with the ships we find with the crew eat? I shuddered. The shelled, or crabbies as Cole called them, were a menace that the galaxy owed a great debt to the humans for eradicating. Driven by some religious edict to consume intelligent life, they wiped out three sapient species before they were scattered. Owls was a small cargo ship, and I was glad to have him on board. He was the only, but one was enough given how small our quarters and passageways were designed. When we were docked, he moved as much cargo as ten of us with his thin robotic exoskeleton. He called it Jimmy, but the worn stenciling on the side said J-I-M-I-268. I wasn't sure what that designation meant. He spoke to it sometimes, when he thought no one was listening. Carl was supposed to be working security, so it was nice of him to chip in with the busy work. During runs to the outer colonies, he would mostly be squeezing himself around in service corridors, talking to himself. It was strange. We were clearing our trays from lunch when the alarm sounded with the strobe lights. Collision alarm! Brace! 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 I hugged the wall and Cole's mechanical arm gripped an overhead beam. I swear I saw the titanium girder start to crumple. Then the lights went out. A moment later, and the drive shut off, and we were weightless. An EMP. Talk to me, Jimmy, Cole shouted. I could not hear any reply, and Jimmy was not even in the room. Cole gripped my shoulder with his natural hand, and I froze under his steely glare. Seven minutes, port number two airlock. Black suit, go! With that order, Cole moved, on all fours crawling wall to wall in zero-g. He was terrifying. Thankfully, it was less than a second before he was out of sight. I heard Cole's voice over the ship-wide speaker. Prepare to repel borders. This is not a drill. I rushed to the nearest suit locker and pulled on my light-duty vac suit. The wrinkly kind that were only meant to keep you alive in an emergency. I worked the seals as I made my way to the airlock. I sealed my helmet as I arrived and grabbed the wall handholds. Thirty seconds later, I heard, no, both footsteps approaching. I turned and didn't understand how Cole was marching down the corridor. The movements were insectile and fluid. I saw in a moment that he was wearing Jimmy, and Jimmy's feet had extended claws that would grip through the metal decking to hold each step securely. 
The trail behind him was a march of ruined footsteps as the claws gripped the deck as if it were tissue to be wadded up and discarded. The dim, phosphorescent emergency light made the entire scene very unsettling. I had never seen Cole or Jimmy move like that, nor seen those claws deployed. Cole was also carrying a very large gun, held at his hip and sticking almost two meters out in front of him. I counted six barrels? Why would it need so many? As he stopped beside me, I could read stenciling on the gun's body. General Electric. Huh. So this is the general. Cole shouted, 762mm tungsten armor-piercing X-ray enhanced. He turned to me and grinned maniacally. This caliber is the largest allowed by corporate to be considered for defensive purposes and not technically a weapon of war. I read the vibrant. I also saw that Cole was wearing a large backpack that was connected to the gun. Probably ammunition? That was a lot of ammunition. Cole continued. Jimmy says it's a crabby boarding frigate. They'll dock nose first and lob plasma grenades first if they get the door opened. If Carl slash Jimmy walked up to the inner airlock door, opened the maintenance panel and pulled the hydraulic release, Jimmy somehow extended two more arms. How many does he have? And pried the doors open. And the airlock stood bare, only the outer doors between them and certain death. Come here! I scurried over. He pointed to the failsafe, a pressurized gas bottle to close the inner doors in case of power outage. What am I supposed to do? I screamed as I hid behind the bulkhead. The ship shuddered as the attackers made contact. Carl clicked the button and the barrel started spinning. Witness me! The next moment was chaos. Fire! The unending crack of thunder felt like it was coming from inside me. That a giant picked me up and shook me. The gun filled the entire airlock with fire and shell casings rained on me at an incomprehensible rate. There was nothing but pure sound. I was a being made up of only vibration. I didn't have to look to know that the rounds went through the closed outer airlock door without even slowing down. Carl started to soar back and forth up and down into more circular motions. I don't know how I knew. But Cole was laughing, howling, screaming. The bulkheads inside the enemy ship melted and shattered, being unmade. Crabbies turned into paste. Biology turned into physics. Cole leaned forward, Jimmy's claws peeling the deck a little further. Smoke filled the airlock and the hallways. I was covered in spent shell casings, nearly half buried. I thought the end of all things would never end. The gun stopped, and the silence was the loudest thing I'd ever heard. The smoke suddenly cleared, and I stood up from my brass burial. I looked around the corner and saw it, the void vacuum out of space. One hundred meters away, down the entire length of the ship, I saw a tiny hole drilled to infinity. Coal had shot through the length of the entire ship. My suit alarm chimed as it detected a drop in air pressure, and I came to my senses for a moment. I pulled the release handle and the inner airlock slammed shut. The general glowed red hot. Fucking A! He extended a middle finger on his artificial hand. Eat that! End of story. Story number two. The wine of my ancestors. Written by something touches back. To Emperor Clath Untok, third emperor of the Clath 
dynasty of the Tuk Empire, from Andis Khan, Prime Minister of the North Eurasian Union. As I write this, I am drinking wine from a gold chalice. As I sip wine, my ancestors speak to me. My ancestors in the Caucasus Mountains of Earth started fermenting the juice of grapes into wine at about the same time that those same ancestors invented metallurgy. My Phoenician ancestors, excellent warriors and neighbors, captured and carried the secrets of wine and metallurgy far to the west in endless walls of conquest. My Roman ancestors defeated the last of the Phoenicians, but carried their love of gold chalices northward. My Roman ancestors were in turn defeated by the Huns who, in conquest, carried the roots of their prized grape varieties into the Frankish lands, including the variety I am currently enjoying. Later, my Scandinavian ancestors liberated this particular chalice from the Frankish monastery and carried it eastwards to found the land of Rus. Finally, my ancestors amongst the Mongols liberated this chalice from the Rus and through my many generations it passed to me. As I sip the wine, my ancestors speak to me. They, who have fought and killed each other over thousands of years, now speak to me. They say that the terms of the so-called vassalage that your representative Prue offered are unsatisfactory. They say that these terms amount to little more than extermination by slavery. My ancestors, six thousand years of warriors and weaponsmiths, are affronted by this, and by the atrocities committed in your name upon our peoples, and those of our allies across a hundred worlds. My ancestors demand compensation. I have shared my ancestors' wine with the heads of the other human factions, and their ancestors have told them to also speak as one. Until the issue is resolved, all humans and all of our allies speak as one. In the box before you, we offer you the head of your representative, Plu. When we have your head in return, we will cease our attacks on the Tok people. Emperor Klathun Tok looked up from the letter as the aide to representative Plu lifted the lid of the boxes that had been placed before the Emperor's throne. One empty, and one exposing the severed head of said representative. I recall someone telling me that the humans were weak and divided into squabbling factions that would not unite against us, said the Emperor. Apparently nobody told the humans that, said the aide. How close are they? Twenty light years. Pushed back to that radius, the mighty Tok Empire has been reduced to ten planets, said the aide. Then pulling from the satchel two glasses and a bottle of Georgian wine, the aide continued, the Tuck people have no choice but to acquiesce to the human's demand. And with that, the guard behind the emperor drew his blade and dropped the emperor's head into an empty box. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1808 The Endless Trial, written by JCB112 Move, you worthless pieces of meat, move! I shouted from atop my golden throne. Hoisted atop. Of the shoulders of each of ten species I now called my subjects. I rattled the reins of the carriage somewhat, causing the recently broken-in slaves at the very front to buckle and stir. It was one of those pink-skinned humanoids, this time dressed appropriately for his station, a simple loincloth, and the imperial seal seared into his front, back, arms, and legs. Indeed, 
This particular one, not now hold me, when my throne had once fancied himself as some sort of a diplomat. Quite a silly prospect, if you would ask me, given how such a lesser species could dream so far above its station. Perhaps next time I'd install more bits and baubles to the carriage, chisel and mold it out of lead or some other heavy metal, just to show these pathetic excuses for sapient life what it really means to earn their keep. My compatriots knew me as Star Lord Yilta, though others among species would refer to me by one of my more common titles, the Conqueror of a Thousand Worlds, the Yoke Master of a Billion Souls, and the Grand Admiral of the Visath Fleets. I was but one of a hundred Star Lords who had been given land, coin, and rule over the vast swath of the galaxy, we now called our own by the will of our mortal and benevolent emperor. My life had been a grand and epic adventure, from my noble pedigree to my academy days to my first contact with humans and valerians and the subsequent wars that came out of their desire for defiance. The life I led was one that I was satisfied with. I wouldn't have changed any bit of it for the world. Yet in my dreams I couldn't help but feel something had begun to run amiss. Memories of my childhood were interspersed with speckles and dreams of lives I had not lived. One as a common slave driver, another as a mere sergeant in my star corps, and another as an industrial magnet, all of which were mere glimpses, but it felt eerily real the more I experienced them. The Estate It was this day, however, the twenty-first day of the first month of the year of our great founder, Emperor Tilnar that I was duty-bound to come face to face with the Emperor himself. I was dressed for the occasion, of course, gold-embroidered silks and satin that hugged my form and displayed my tone and chiseled strength of my kind, my scales being visible enough through the translucent fabrics. There were an entire army of slaves that had come to adorn me with my elements of a fine regalia. Heavy chests of gold and silver carried aloft by slaves that I cared not to even glance at. Slave artists and artisans continued to work on my body and face paint. Yet, as I began to inspect the work, I noticed something was awry, something that was completely unacceptable given the time frame I had to work with. A pattern drawn just above my left pectoral was left slightly askew, imperceptible to most, even amongst my peers, but not to me. The slave in question was brought before me, as I glared down at the mewling form, yet another one of those smooth-skinned hairless primates. This one cowered in fear as it begged and rattled on and on about excuses upon excuses. I was having none of it. We saved your kind from yourselves, too pathetic to win a fight, too miserable to stand up against us, too broken to even stand on your two feet. I shouldn't even be bothering with this whole tirade. I practically sighed to myself as I snapped my fingers. The slave was taken away. Whatever punishments befell it was firmly in the hands of the slave overmasters. It didn't matter, not to me anyways as I only did it as a show of hierarchy. I had no ill will towards the slave, personally, just the species it belonged to. This failure only cemented that fact. The road. The trip to the Imperial Palace was rather uneventful. 
I did pass a few of my kind who seemed to have taken it upon themselves to represent the so-called rights of those lesser races. I cared not to entertain any of them. If it wasn't for the fact that one of them just so happened to be in the way of my litter. I had my slaves march my throne over to the leader as a pathetic attempt at protest, a handful of my own kind blocking a major thoroughfare designated for nobles and indeed quite a novel sight. So I entertained them, allowing my carriage to be lowered somewhat, stressing the forearms of the packed slaves as I did so, much to the visible disgust and chagrin of the protest leaders. If there is something you wish to say to me, you may say it now, my fellow Vasari, though make it quick. This isn't right, the protester spoke back with an air of defiance mixed in with an unmistakable desire to remain respectful to a figure of authority. She couldn't press this matter too far, after all. What isn't? I could back this. All of this, don't you see? They're just as sapient, just as capable, just as smart as you and I. But did you let propaganda get to your head? You know that keeping a sapient in chains and binds as literal animals is wrong. No, it isn't. But blocking the road designated for nobility is. So I choose my next words very wisely, young one. I yawned back, eliciting a shiver from the protester, who still remained defiant. You've literally talked to the last race you enslaved face to face, eye to eye, just fifty years ago. Yes, I have. What of it? Why? Why can't you see, then, that this is wrong? They were equals. I don't understand how you can just... Because, young one, that's how the galaxy works. That's how the universe works. There is a principle of nature that every being knows. It's called survival of the fittest. And this is just how it goes. The being that makes it to the top has to claw and bite and kick and climb. The being that doesn't just ends up as someone else's prey. I spat back. That's a nursery rhyme that schools are forced to teach you, and it's clear that they didn't teach you well enough then. Enough to remember it, but not enough to understand it. A young fellow, I'd reconsider your life's trajectory if I were you. Now, stand aside. I have pressing matters to attend to. A few aggressive gestures from the guards had managed to persuade the young protester to acquiesce to my demands as she finally stood aside. You still have one more chance. Please, you can still stop this. The protester promptly shouted at me as I simply ignored her with a simple wave. The palace. A few hours later, and with the labored breaths of slaves underneath me reaching an all-time high, I finally arrived at the palace. Upon entering the grand hall, I was instantly hit by a grandeur of it all. The gold, the fine marble and quartz, the gems and rare stones from the galaxy underfoot. The chamber, immediately preceding the Emperor's own throne room, was perhaps the most impressive of all, however. There I encountered relics of lesser species civilizations, each one corresponding to a torn and ripped-up flag behind them. The last and only vestiges of their culture allowed to survive. Now all but decorations, with their meanings, their cultures, their creeds and ideologies, all but lost to the sands of time. Entering the throne room, I immediately knelt down to one knee, as the emperor sat atop a throne that it would shrouded in a thick and translucent draperies. My emperor, I am here as my duty entails. I humbly spoke as a rough cough alerted me to the beginnings of the emperor's response. Ah... What is it your name is this time around? 
I perked my brow at that thorough statement. This time around, what could he mean by that? Perhaps he had just met several more Star-Lords, and confusion was starting to set in. I am Star-Lord Yilta, Your Excellency, I proclaimed. Ah, Yilta, so how do you think you've done in this life? Hmm? The Emperor continued, his voice echoing through the halls in an off-porting, almost ethereal manner. I ignored those vague comments, and interpreted them as perhaps just the poetic nature of a man wizened beyond his years. I believe I have done well, Your Excellency. I have served the Empire as best my abilities. I have raised worlds, as you have requested. I have commanded fleets to subdue unruly worlds, and even brought down the human Aurelian Alliance that once stood in our way, and once challenged our ways. I brought that pesky diplomat Arthur Nelson to heal, and he remains still in my litter to this day. I had ensured that our people will continue false unimpeded, unchallenged, as we prepare for our next prize. Andromeda, Your Excellency. My voice grew stronger and louder with the pride of each passing word. Hmm. Any regrets? Anything you wish that you could have changed? The Emperor responded ambivalently. No, Your Excellency, but I should have been stricter against the Illyrillians. I did request a full bombardment of their worlds to desaturate their population. But Trade Minister Vesa wished to enslave the race as we had done the humans, so I was forced to soften my hand in that regard. There was another pause as a loud, almost impossibly reverberant sigh echoed through not just the hall, but my own mind, as I took a few steps back in shock. The veil that had obstructed my view of the Emperor soon parted, revealing a human, which sat legs hanging on the throne clearly designed for the Vasani not a being with a diminutive strength and stature. What is the meaning of this, gods? he shouted, looking over my shoulder to see nothing. What had been a cavernous hall of marble, gold and stone, had now become nothing. Nothing but a white void that didn't even feel hot or cold to the touch, but just felt empty. What? And that is iteration 921,325,001 of Subject Captain Yulta Arrhenius. The program will now cease. The human spoke as the last vestiges of the Grand Palace seemed to apparate into nothing. Nothing but a white void filled the space around us as the human took petite steps forwards towards me. What is the meaning of this? I shouted back, stepping back instinctively, and against the better judgment. Oh, relax, we've been through this over 9,000 times now, Captain. Captain, my title is Starlord and Sergeant and Slave Overseer and Director and CEO. And do you want me to keep rattling on? Starlord has been your best run yet, let me tell you that. Best as in most successful, though probably worst in terms of your moral and ethical character index reports. Sad. Disappointing. I half expected you to turn over a new leaf when your wife died. T Talana? Yes. I thought that perhaps her sympathies towards the downtrodden would have awoken something within you. Didn't expect you to simply act as if everything was just back to business as usual. After that, though, I mean, we gave you so many lifelines in this one, Captain. Seriously, you could have scored so much better. 
I'm starting to believe what you really are incapable of compassion and morals and ethics. And I'm one to talk. The human continued rattling on as I finally had enough, growled at her as I reached a claw out to strike her, only to find my hand disappeared into nothing on contact. Hey, stop that. I'm seriously trying to help here. But this isn't helping matters. Honestly, I've tried. I can't really give you any more information on the proceedings outside of the non-specifics. But I'm honestly on your side here. Humanity is not anything if not forgiving and merciful. I began to panic, attempted to run, to just move away from the human's general direction, sprinting my way this way and that, only finding more of a white void, and more and more of my form disappearing to the ether. What sort of twisted game is this? I shouted back at the human, who once again manifested before me without warning. It's not a game, Captain. Like I said, it's a trial. We take you, the core of what makes you you, and we run it through different permutations, seeing if perhaps your prior crimes were a result of environmental factors. We modified every potential variable and ran you through every potential permutation of what your life could have been like. You might have noticed some bleed over in your dreams, very common, an unintentional and unavoidable side effect of the technology. But I digress. We give you a chance to prove that perhaps the crimes in your life weren't entirely your fault. Indeed, we're doing this with the... Uh, ah, sorry, I've spoken too much. Reckless, Captain, it's clear that you have not only proven us wrong this time around, but you've outdone yourself too. Billions killed and enslaved in your name... That's not a good look, Captain. I could only glare back at the abject fear, as I felt more and more of myself slipping. All that was left of me was a torso and a head, looking dead on at eye level with the diminutive human. Don't worry, though, we'll give you another shot. This time, yes, I'll just let the algorithm decide what we're going to end up being this time around. Until we meet, Captain. It was with that that the human disappeared as well as my own sense of self. All that was left was an endless void, and my memories to preoccupy me. What crimes had I committed that had forced me into such a sorry state? And then it hit me. Memories of my prior real life. A captain of the Venari mercenary fleet, leading raids in human settlements and various other aliens. I saw the blood, the viscera, the suffering, and then it clicked. This was all an elaborate attempt to see if I was worthy of leaving that life behind. I cried out in despair, calling out for that human, desperately shouting into the void with only my thoughts. Yet as time pressed onwards, so too would my consciousness as I felt myself slipping into a deep sleep. I tried to fight it, tried to resist it, but nothing worked. In the end, I was left with those final few words, not from the human, but that protester, if she'd even existed in the first place. You still have one more chance. Please, you can still stop this. I wish I'd taken that chance. Luna Havenport, Xeno Studies Institute. Rows upon rows of servers hummed in a large, expansive room that was half-submerged in the coolant necessary to maintain this operation. Above the submerged electronics was a single chair facing the window, which housed a small team of scientists busy at the controls. Any luck with the captain? My voice hollered over the intercom, causing me to stir in my seat as I removed my direct neural interfacer from my head. Um, no. That's a shame. Don't worry, though. 
Here's a few more tries left. This time he's going to be a... Um, seems like the algorithms having him start his life off at one of the Empire's outer rim worlds. Born to a miner and a truck driver, it seems. Let's see how this one pans out. Hopefully better than the latest run, because my god, yeah, yeah. Let's not talk about it. I need a long fucking shower after that. How many did you interface with today? Five thousand, give or take. They're all blend together after a while. Thank God for the clock cycle. If it wasn't for that, we'd be here for days, weeks without sleep. Definitely. Well, just get yourself sorted quickly. I'm going to clock out as soon as possible. A silence once more hung over the room, leaving only the constant background noise of coolant pumps and the occasional thunk of machinery to fill the awkward silence. I took this opportunity to begin wrapping up for the day, packing up the neural interfacer into its container and running some last-minute diagnostics. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1809 Story number one. True Courage, written by Incredibles Ha. Humans, pathetic, weak, honorless, and cowardly. Gerkson looked at one of the humans assigned to his engine. Braille, short, and cowardly. That was what he considered them to be. They had won one war, just one, and already considered themselves masters of the galaxy. Whatever, he had to deal with this pathetic thing now. The line of creatures assigned to his engine room stood before him in a neatly organized line. Each one of them was nervous. This was the first day aboard the Argian vessel, the flowing heat. The warmth of the various machines around them made the room feel like the inside of a furnace. They would be forged here into competent engineers and hardy laborers. Their metal and strength would be tested in the upcoming trials. If they'd passed here, well, then they'd declared competent enough to work on any ship. The key word being if. Most would not. He grinned. Seeing arrogant fools fail would never cease to amuse him. Well, Camera, I'll get straight to the point. In these trials, your courage and strength will be tested. Most of you will fail, he said. A storm of murmurs erupted from around him. He made a gesture with his claw. His hardy pitch-black scales glittering in the light of the heat of the machines around him. The murmurs stopped. He continued. We are here upon this vessel to test not only your technical abilities, but since most of you will be serving on warships, test your physical prowess. He looked around. Most of the candidates were nervous or afraid. Only a few were confident. The human was perhaps the most scared. The cowardly bastard. He probably failed the first trial, Gurkish thought. Now for the first trial, you'll be handling sun-forged steel, he said. The hottest steel to ever be discovered. You will have to handle it using molten ceramic gloves and ensure that it gets to the energy chambers. He presented a pair of gloves. The energy chambers were a structure where some forged metal was deposited and used as a source of power. It was notoriously dangerous, with one misstep being able to kill you. The candidates had already trained to do this, but this was no training room. This was real life. First, the Iterian, he declared. The meek reptile walked up to Gerakish. He gave him a pair of gloves and an orb of power. The reptile took the orb and held it in front of him. When I press the button, Gerkish gestured towards the red button on the left of him, the gates towards the chambers will open. Your task will be to deliver that inside the chambers and come back within the time and alive. You'll fail and die. 
Gurkish said, deepening his voice at the last part, to make it more severe. The reptile merely nodded. Gurkish pressed the button. With an almighty thud, the gates opened and the lizard went inside. For a few moments it was quiet. Until a loud scream was heard within the chambers, Gurkish looked at his watch. Time's up, he said to himself. He closed the gates. As the gates closed, the Gurkish turned his gaze towards the candidates, most of them positively terrified. One of the few confident ones left was a Kargar, a feline race with a red fur coat. The Kargar female took a step forwards. I wish to try, she said. Gurkish handed her a pair of gloves and a sun-forged orb. The Kargar's paws were put into the pair of gloves and took the orb. Gurkish pressed the button, and once again the nimble feline went into the chambers without fear. A few minutes later she came out again. This time her fur was charred and her face deformed. She was coughing up her own lungs and collapsed to her knees. Gurkish moved up to the creature's body and checked for a pulse. Gone. She was dead. Gurkish stood up once again. Anyone else want to try? he said, looking at the line of candidates. If you succeed, you'll be the finest engineers to have ever lived. If you fail, you won't live at all, he declared. No, he looked at the line. They had either given up or were too scared to give their opinion. If you wish to flee from here, put up your paw, he declared. About half a dozen or so candidates did so. He gestured to them to leave, leaving him only with five alive candidates. Two Iterians, two Kargars, and one human. One human? Strange, he thought. He expected the frail creature to be gone by now. No matter. He'd surrender when actually asked to do such a task. You! Gurkish pointed his sharp claw towards the human male. He simply stared back at Gurkish, his feet trembling and sweat dripping from his face. It's your go, human. You will die, flee or succeed, Gurkish declared. The human merely grimaced and nodded. Then go forth, he said, and gave the human the glove. It fit him perfectly, as if made for him. The human went into the chambers. It walked slower than any previous creature. It would fail, Gurkish was sure. He wasn't even sure the human would enter. The human seemed to almost be collapsing in on himself due to fear. But the human continued into the hell that were the chambers. After a few minutes, the human, like the Kargar, came back scarred and burnt, yet still alive. The human did not collapse to his knees, though. One of the candidates' line-line spoke. The, the coward did it! The candidate looked at more. The human responded with a heavily charred voice. Bravery is not the absence of fear. It is overcoming it. End of story. Story number two. Chase Death. Written by Cow Bynes. Wherever there was fresh rubble and rotting bodies, there they were. Some would hold guns as others bore red crosses, wrapping bandages and pouring burning liquids that sealed the wounds. As food stalls dwindled, that same cross would mark trucks or boxes falling from the sky, carrying the driest and most tasteless things you could imagine. Yet, it would still be in my mind as the best food I've ever had. Unsettled dust and ash, they would bring large and loud machines clearing through buildings of before as they found them missing and dead, constructing both graves and rebuilding homes at the same time. Towns being rebuilt in days, cities in weeks, leaving memories and marks of before. Plaques in town squares and buildings holding pieces 
of their predecessors. After weapons were drawn and people shot, they would arrive, dragging wounded away or returning with their own as they drew their attention from others. As fires or explosions would engulf buildings, rushing in, busting through walls and doors, tearing open broken and mangled vehicles, and trying to repair those broken and mangled inside them. For those who they couldn't save, still fighting till the last second against their end, pounding on chests or zapping them in a desperate attempt to stave off the inevitable. Their ships would enter systems blockaded by ships abound and, like thunder, slam into them, throwing wave upon wave of ships like hammers, crashing and cracking their enemies in half or throwing themselves into the enemy, even following those which may retreat from system to system as other ships stayed behind to repair themselves or those they may save. It was my father's ship the humans saved in those cracked skies above Kyurkor, then me later in her rubble. It was in both of our experiences that we learned what exactly the humans did and their reasoning, though we will probably never be able to understand it. When I talk to them, they act like it is untrue, but when I see a human's behavior, it is undeniable even if unseen to them. They chase death not intentionally in a suicidal way like some will choke, but to beat death. Every step they get nearer they see as an accomplishment from birthdays to advances in scientifically understanding it. They will chase after it, following in its wake to undo its work, taking people from its grasp, jumping in after warlords and tyrants to save those beneath them from ending up in the more of an unjust death. Yet they don't run from it like they force others to. Whether in a hospital bed or on the bridge of a ship, at the end they will stare it down with acceptance. They will not go easily, don't mistake me for saying that, but they will accept death as a reality and still stand straight to defy it. Tell it to feck itself even when it's certain. In the most odd way, the humans will, despite their best efforts, probably outlive us all in their quest to protect others, and acceptance of death in such a reckless and almost lethal way. They will find the ways to live despite the odds. And someday, they may even pass death while supplying it all the same in their arms race. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1810 Story number one. In Death's Garden, the human in the top hat. Written by Teller of Tall Tales. Of all the races on Earth, I consider humans the least tasteful. The elves, dwarves, orcs, all had their charming qualities as a species, granting them their own special afterlife with their gods. But humans, for the largest part, did not believe in a specific god or gods. Their religions, why, and vary. A point of often conflict so, when I say the marshed human in the black suit and top, calmly leaning against the asphodel pomegranate tree, staring at the black sky and dull sun, was a surprise. I did not say it lightly. The human seemed content to rest there, occasionally lowering the hand mouthpiece to sip from a small flask. I thought how to approach. It's not common knowledge that humans make their promise to kill death quite regularly, but none truly mean it, could they? 
I approached from behind, not making a sound as I encroached upon the relaxing human. When I was only a meter away, the human turned to look behind the tree, pale blue eyes locking into the void beneath my hood. I was wondering when you would show up, he stated in a soft, youthful voice. I stayed silent as the human went back to gazing at the sky. I was hoping I'd get to see my friends again at the end, but I guess I'm alone here. The sadness in the human's voice cut me deep, a feeling I'd never felt as I remembered his memories. The staccato fire of an automatic firearm filled my ears, the anguished screams and wet gasps of pain from sucking chest wounds. I found myself resting against the tree on the opposite side of the tree. What brings you here? I inquired softly, lacing my bony fingers together. The human laughed softly. <laughs> I volunteered to stay behind while the others got out. Part of it was for them. Part of it was because I must cronk. The human paused, sighing gently and groaning as he stood. Perhaps you could walk with me a while, Mr. Death. I'd like someone to tell my story to. I pondered the request and stood, letting the human lead as he stepped into one of the smooth obsidian paths. He started by taking off his hat as he gazed at the bush of black roses. My parents abandoned me at birth. The first person I have memories of is Big Sister Tasha and Brother Kronk, an elf and an orc for clarification. He donned his hat, continued to walk. We stuck together in the orphanage, had to, to survive. When nobody wished to adopt three children or separate races, we were thrown to the street. In those clear blue eyes, sadness loomed like a black cloud. Tasha was the first to fall. She got addicted to an elven drug I can't remember the name of, and I watched my big sister fade away in front of me. He wiped his eyes and stopped by some violet purple lilacs. Gronk. Gronk was brave. Braver than I ever could have dreamed to be. We accidentally wandered into the dwarves' territory. We were just looking for a place to rest when we heard the shout. He seemed to flinch and shudder. Kronk put me behind him when we saw the gun. He saved me at the expense of his life. I held his hand as he took his last breaths, fighting to stay alive just ten minutes longer so an ambulance could arrive. Tears moistened the eye holes of the mask as the human wiped his eyes and snuffled. I was alone after that, and I did a lot of bad things in the name of avenging my friends. I killed people. I stole life-saving medicine to get high. I broke families apart and destroyed neighborhoods in the name of my friends. He stopped as he spotted an open grave deep in the poppy fields. It caught up to me eventually. I was shot in the chest and left for dead by the orcs for robbing one of their banks. He gazed off into the distance silently. Is that how you got here? I asked softly, wondering why someone who did all this would regret it if they were no longer accountable. He shook his head. No. Something uh, strange happened while I was bleeding out. Kronk appeared there, standing on the edge of the grave I dug for myself. He asked me, is this what I saved you for? To end up dead in the middle of a field after ruining so many lives? Maybe my death was in vain, and as I lay there, dying, I wished I could get one more shot at life. Maybe I'd get it right this time. He took a deep breath and alighted from his pocket as he removed the black top hat. An old friend, clean from her addictions, dug me out. Tasha nursed me back to health 
but told me she couldn't support me down the road I was on. He sparked the light and touched it to the hat, the flames spreading across it and his suit in a wildfire that made me step back. When the flame extinguished, a stark white suit and top hat adorned his body. So, uh, I changed my ways. I began recruiting people for a gang. The Top Hat Clan, I named it, after an ancient computer game faction. As we grew, we did great things. They seemed to relax a little. Members patrolled their neighborhoods and kept them safe at night. We opened up kitchens for the homeless and rehab centers for the addicted. We went to a war with brutal cartels and gangs to hopefully bring peace to our little corner of Earth. He pulled off his hat and then his mask. A young man, no more than twenty-five, smiled into the distance. I was hot that day, I died. I was sweating like a pig in my Kevlar suit as we rolled towards our final battle, Mariana de Valtis Cartel. We invaded the base only to find their leader, a heartbeat sensor hooked to a massive stash of explosives. A tear rolled down his faces. I didn't once regret telling them to shut me in there with him and run. After all, I'm the leader. That's my job. Get everyone out alive. He began to fade away as he's dead. When I knew they were gone, I shot him in the head. Like smoke in the wind, the man disappeared and left me thinking. Maybe I should reserve a place here for those humans who do such good. End of story. Story number two. Something to lose, written by Warp Mike. Mercantile star on the edge of Psy Dracoda's system. Azag coughed and spat a little blood. The beating had been brutal. So, satisfied with the abuse yet? Oh, mighty pirate captain. Grax sneered back. How have you beaten until you tell me what I want to know? So speak! Azak sighed. It would help if you actually told me what you want, you know. I could recite encyclopedias until you get specific. But until you actually ask me a question... One of Grux's goons kicked Azak in the side, probably leaving a small fracture in the rib. Quit sassing, ya captain, and answer him. Grux gestured his goon to take a step back. You found a human and tamed it. I want to know how. I'm trying to secure a few of my own readers, but they are uh, difficult to get compliant, despite their documented capacity for violence. Azak shook his head. You want humans as uh, aggressively trained pets. Won't work. They're not animalistic. They're sentience. Grox gestured to his goons again, and they dragged in a huddled figure of a man. Muscular, but timid, seemingly not quite mentally present. This human of yours is a veteran soldier. A marine, I think, and they call him. But I asked around. You found him in a drift in space. After he was apparently lost in a stasis pod for an unknown amount of time, yes. By all accounts, he should be a ravening beast. But you've kept him docile, yet an effective soldier who follows orders. Tell me how. As Ackermanst, well, we picked up Corporal White a while back, and he's been uh, through uh, things I can't even imagine. My grandpa had more dealings with humans, closer to their regional space, and he told me that the best way to keep a human befriended is to give them something they care about. Something to care for. Grux chuckled, signaling his goon to kick Azag again as a small cage was brought into the room. We found the human spunk. You're saying that you gave him the stroll for a pet. Ridiculous. But you're not keeping his loyalty like that. 
Grux reached into the cage and pulled out a small, fluffy animal, similar to the shape of a hexapedal rabbit, and tore its head off with a competuous sneer. There, your hold of him's broken. Now he'll serve me. Keep your head down and I might not blow your ship up with weird depart. Azak laughed, a sore, painful laughter. <laughs> oh, but Grandpa told me another thing, too. The only thing more dangerous than a human with something to protect is a human who has just lost the lasting precious to him. And if you're the one that calls that state of affairs, you may the gods have mercy on you, but the human will not. Grux looked at Anzac with a confused expression, then turned towards the human as two bodies softly thumped against the floor, and a hoarse voice whispered, Daisy. Grux never made it back to his own ship. Azek, on the other hand, spent a long time consulting his broken human friend afterwards, and brought him along to an animal shelter on the next port of call. As his grandpa had told him, sometimes the only way that you can help a human is to give them something to lose. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1811 If this doesn't work, I'm going to be too mad to attend your funeral. Written by In Babylon They Wept. It was a slow-motion disaster. A hive ship had appeared just half a system away. There was an asteroid belt within that region. Odds were good that the craft had been there before the research station was even built. The living crafts could hibernate for hundreds of eons or solar alone. There were defenses on the station, of course, but they were made to repel pirates and raiders, not bio-organic warships. The best bet would be to bail on the station and outrun the craft with the rapid escape shuttles. Whatever strengths the hive ships had, they were at least painfully slow. Unfortunately, the escape vectors were not looking good. Slow as the hive ships were, they could accelerate massively in short bursts before depleting their boosters. Even if their peak speed was just under half the escape ships, the shuttles would never have time to reach it. Ion thrusters were a long-haul type investment, theoretically perfect for the station in deep space, less than ideal when the monster everyone's afraid of turns out to be stashed in the attic. Valros and Brishinj were eyeing those shuttles nervously, never knew much about their construction, but Earl and Shiloh told them that they needed to cut as much dead weight as possibly could. Then they left. Those two apparently had a plan. Basinge didn't need a plan. He had a plasma cutter. Live or die, he was going to do what he loved. The cutter flared blue-green as Brasinge gave its intensity trigger an experimental squeeze. Fuck seats! Val clicked his pincers together, menacingly back. And fack upholstery! Shiloh was pouring through the blueprints of the station. Most of it was Greek to him. He didn't do structural work but the electrical numbers were starting to paint a picture for him of just how much power he could funnel into the station's ion thrusters. It was a lot. He didn't know if they had some arcane purpose in mind, or if it was just a good luck on his part, but the main power conduit connected directly to each thruster. He didn't have to worry about slagging another connector cabling. Sky was the limit when it came to the turbocharging those bad boys. He passed on the good news to Earl. They are clear on the thrusters. Uh, the reactors would go critical long before the cabling failed. How are your numbers coming up? How fast can this thing spin before it pulls itself apart? 
Earl picked nervously, at his stubby chin. He wished that he had time to shave. Only thing worse than dying was dying scruffy. Best case scenario is round 120 RPM. Worst case is 80. If we can leave within the next 27 minutes, we won't have to risk going above that. There's just one problem. What is it? The airlocks can't hold the ships from the outside if we rotate that fast. We're going to have to start them out inside. Shiloh made contact with Earl and saw the horrified look in his face. Ah, so they were thinking of the same solution, at least. Steam rose off of Val's body in the billowing clouds, the orange light of the emergency alarm scattering through them like tongues of flame. He picked another chair from inside the craft, connectors still glowing orange from the plasma cuts, and tossed it casually across the full length of the deck. Resinched stared. He may have developed a slight, barely noticeable infatuation. That's hot! Okay. Well, maybe a little bit more noticeable. If you're staring at my ass, I'm gonna pinch you in half. Eh? Uh, Bell rolled his eyes, but smiled easily enough. Anything you can think of, we've removed the upholstery, the chairs, the lighting, and the dash. How much weight gone? About twenty percent. Resinge wrapped his knuckles against the side of the craft, deep in thought. Finally he reached a conclusion. This isn't working. Then the intercom crackled to life. Earl tapped the mic a few times to see if it was working. Stop that! Stasis! Ah, apparently it was. Station's going to hack the spacecraft out like stones from a sling. There was a pause on the other side as Brissinge digested this plan. Sound dumb! How's scrapping those shuttles working for you? There was another pause. Good point! Thought so. Shiloh's on his way. He has the details. Small spoiler. We're going to love this. Involves breaching charges. Earl was right. This was fantastic. Stupid as hell. But everyone here had wasted their lives being smart. Live smart, die dumb. If there was a tattoo parlor on board, Brissinge would have gotten that on his forehead. Hell, if he survived this, that was the first thing on his bucket list. Bell had stuck with it, but looking at it from his raised position on the crane, he was starting to have second thoughts. So, uh... How sure are you that the charges are just going to weaken the ground wall? Enough for the vacuum to rip it off. Shiloh grunted. Oh, uh, I'm 100% sure that that part will work. Uh, we went way overboard on the charges. Vector timing was the part part. But Earl says he's got some way to time the pulse by choosing which solar cells is going to divert power from. I'm just hoping we got the lift high enough that we'll make it through the blast, okay? Shrapnel is the wild card here. Val twindled his antennae. And how is Earl gonna make it out of here? He said he had a plan to make those thrusters turn on slowly. His plan was to hit the power, then race down here before the G-forces got too high for him to move. Apparently, Neo-Tallahassee was at 1.4 Gs. He's better at handling this than you'd expect. So maybe Earl had told a little lie. He wasn't planning on going down with the ship but he knew damn well that there was no way to raise gravity slowly enough to make it to the escaped craft before collapsing. So he wasn't going to do that. He had a little Hail Mary in mind, but it sounded so absurdly stupid that he was pretty sure that Shiloh wouldn't have insisted on doing it himself. Gambling like this was only suicide if you weren't lucky. Earl was supremely lucky. He checked the timer, 11 minutes left. 
He was debating hitting the comm and checking in on them when it crackled to life on its own accord. The occasional odd pause gave the speaker away as well. Oh, we got the charges in and the station's been loaded into the ships. I'm crammed in here with all the marketing division. Please tell me that we're ready to dance. He wasn't, but if they waited for him to be emotionally prepared for this, they'd be half digested in the hive ship before he was even close. If there was ever time to put on a brave face, this was it. He took a deep breath then, steeled his nerves, and called in response. I'd tell you to put on your blue suede, but you'd need a month's pay to get the set for each of your creepy little crab feet. It's go time! He punched in the fastest RPM he felt safe with. 79. There was a pause as the station digested the somewhat insane request. Warnings obscured the screen in layers, layers, that he peeled through in like an onion. As he hit the last manual override, there was a brief pause as the station processed that the request was not an error. He could almost imagine some little gremlin peering back at him from the screen, confused, but loyal enough to say, OK, boss, if you say so. The reactor floored it. He could feel the rumble of its turbine as it tripled its power output, amazingly still below 60% of its maximum. There was almost no delay between the power spike and the ion thrusters' torque. There was an agonizing groan throughout the station as the torque strained everything, from the steel bolts between the modules of the donut to the tensile strength of the walls themselves. Then the crop began to spin. As the G-meter climbed past 1.9, Shiloh got nervous. Once it hit 2.5, he panicked. No! Are you gonna make it? You better be conscious, you! The voice that came in on the other end of the comm was very much conscious, even nonchalant. I'm not out of the control room. Gravity near the middle of the hub is almost non-existent. I'm not even a 1G yet. Shiloh paused to consider this. 2.6. You're going down with the ship? No? 2.7. Well, maybe. 2.8. Not if I can help it. There's no time to explain. Just trust me when I say that I'm not planning on being a martyr. 3. Hold on. 4. 6. And then Shiloh blacked out. Earl was surprised that the little man had held on so long. Shiloh was tougher than he looked. The G-meter kept climbing after 6, maxing out at 9. Earl wasn't a doctor. He didn't know what the consequence of being out for more than 20 seconds like that was, but he didn't want to push it any more than he needed to. Brissinge had made the detonators by connecting a wire from the light bulb socket to the charges. All Earl needed to do to blow open the hull was turn on the light. Bell's hydraulic musculature let his whole body act as a heart. Nine Gs was far too much for him to support his own size, but it wasn't enough to knock him out. He was terrifyingly, horrifically, beautifully awake. The room flashed white as the charges went off, each one slagging a six-foot radius of hull. The edges of each crater glowed white for a fraction of a second before exposed to the hard vacuum of space, dulled them orange. The magnetic seals holding the craft to its crane disconnected, each massive ship falling ten feet in 9G environment, and the entire ground plate gave way with ease barely slowing the impact, and the room exploded apart as the pressurized atmosphere expanded to fill the cosmic void. Earl's vantage point didn't let him see much. The direct outer wall of his station was the biggest blind spot. All he could do was count down and pray that his friends were okay. 
It took almost half a minute, but Val came in first. Nothing more complicated than a simple radio broadcast. No deaths. The tension cut immediately, anxiety alchemizing into glee. Earl Shoulders didn't even have time to fall before Val continued his update. Couple of broken bones, but nothing and that won't be fixed once we take it to the outpost stratum. A wrench put through some of the side of my craft, but it bounced off my shell, so thank the gods. Worst part of that was the panic everyone had before Brisinge managed to slap some plasteel over the hole. We've got enough oxygen in here to make it to the outpost Kronos, twice and back. Earl waited to see if more was going to be added. He only had a receiver here. No transmitter mic wasn't designed to work in anything but the station. But he desperately wanted to assure them that he was okay. That this was all going to be okay. The pause stretched on almost a minute before Shiloh's voice called in one last message. His accent harsher with the intensity of the emotion. Be careful out there, dumbass. If this doesn't work, I'm going to be too mad to attend your funeral. We've been looking out for you since day one. You can't leave us out of the loop like this. Earl winced. He knew the other man couldn't hear it, but he couldn't help a little whisper that escaped his lips in the silence of the control room. I'm sorry. I hope this works too. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1812 Lightbringer, written by Tal McCall Smathy, being a practical drone, made her peace with death as a grub. The fact that these pirates were potentially going to sell her as a slave, or perhaps keep her as a laborer, was in many ways comforting. Insurance would compensate the corporation for both the loss of the ship and what remained of her useful life expectancy. Any additional purpose she could serve in her captive life would only magnify the productivity of her life. Sadly, the cargo would likely not be covered as electromagnetic blast had knocked out communications. Neither the phosphate cargo nor the human laborer would be acknowledged as being received as no transmission had been sent before reaching the edge of the hyperdense atmosphere. Perhaps Spathy could negotiate with the pirates to send a message confirming the weight of the cargo and the economic value of the human in exchange for the rest of her life, spent in faithful service. Thus idea pleased Spathy, as she began to manually record the cargo weight and purity from memory onto her own skilled carapace. Her species' word carried enough trust that the insurance would have no reason to argue a fraudulent statement. There was no reason to hope for a ransom. The logistics of Interstellar did not favor the transport of a single drone for any distance. Having absentmindedly completed a reasonable valuation of the cargo based on current market prices and remaining logistical costs, she turned her attention to the human. The poor being was nearly tearing itself and the light deck to pieces while the ship floated silently in the gaseous soup. The extremophile had been hired as a repair technician for the surface mining stations on the planet solely for its ability to withstand the enormously dense atmosphere of this planet. Smathy had only basic knowledge of her passenger and could only roughly approximate the creature's market value based on what her own corporation had paid for his labor. Smathy decided to interrupt the creature's frantic destruction of the ship as she couldn't be sure the pirates would allow them to speak after capture. Human laborer, how long do you have left to live? Spathy motioned to the human after capturing its focus long enough to signal her query. Spathy, what the feck kind of question is that? I have no idea. 
maybe 20 minutes, assuming a standard range on that torpedo, and however long it takes these assholes to breach the hull. Then they are going to have to pull a wrench from my cold, dead hands. Just help me with the throttle cable, okay? The human's method of communication was vibrating Spathy's delicate antennae, but thankfully, her cybernetic translator had survived the electromagnetic pulse due to its largely biotic components and ruggedly simple transistors. Forgive, human laborer. I mean to determine your remaining economic value so your owners might be compensated for your loss. You are insured as a subcontractor on board my vessel. However, your irregular boarding was not recorded. I will endeavor to bargain for the right to inform my corporation on your behalf. Spathy was not entirely sure that the human could interpret such delicate signaling gestures accurately, but she felt morally obliged to try. The human inhaled deeply while staring at Spathy. She was briefly unsettled by how casually it absorbed the delicate mixture of gases designed to replicate her own biological needs. When he had requested to come aboard, he had dismissed her atmospheric data despite her protests. Extremophiles or not, the species' indifference to safety was appalling. Bringer of Light, my name is Bringer of Light, and your concern is a very kind. However, I have no intention of being captured. If you must know, I am thirty-four years old, and I had intended to retire at fifty-two, but my wife thinks I should stop at forty-five. Although, with what you guys are paying me, I might be able to just make a couple more contracts and live on the interest. Smathy had to admit, the creature's ability to communicate without looking at her was an advantageous trick. Mentally converting his time reference, she realized this creature's economic value was absurdly high. Assuming that he was implying that he was capable of working a contract like this one, he had just completed an additional 108 times without his mate prematurely terminating him. Curious as to why his owner would terminate such an economically valuable asset, Smathy resisted the urge to question him further on the subject. Instead, she converted his contract for maximum economic return, as was customary in insurance claims, and came to the staggering conclusion this laborer was worth more than herself and her vessel combined. Excitedly, she concluded that the pirates might even be persuaded to ransom them both given their lack of need for extremophile hyperdensity repair technician. Unable to contain her excitement, she extracted herself from her work pod and regained the human's attention. Bringer of light, I believe my corporation would be willing to pay our ransom and retrieval in exchange for ownership of your remaining labor. Unlike your mate, they will not terminate you prematurely. Smathy did not need her translator to discern the utter confusion on the human's main sensory plate. Understandable. The cost of retrieval was enormous. While she attempted to simplify her logic, the human began to pulse incoherent vibrations, startling her and stunning her senses at the close range. Bringer of light, is that what my name translates to? That's <laughs> too perfect. More nonsensical vibrations. And no one owns me or my labor but me. Still, thank you very much for the offer, but... Why don't you focus on getting those last four throttle cables into the hub here? Then I'll explain why my wife wants to retire me early. The speech returned to the nonsensical vibrations. Having been distracted by her attempts to make an inventory of the ship's value, Smathy had failed to notice there was a purpose to the human's destruction of the ship. Not being an engineer, she could only understand that the human had begun assembly of a crude manual input for the ship's six maneuvering thrusters. Ingenious but pointless. 
without a computerized gyro, attempting to manually fire thrusters on full power by physically connecting the cables to emergency power, which has caused the ship to wildly flail between the lifting balloon and the hanging cargo pod. It was at that moment she noticed the human had located and removed the emergency manual balloon deflation, and the master cargo harpoon disconnect. Frantically, she tapped her appendages on the human's thigh, being unable to reach any higher on the biped. No, 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 the pirates deliberately disabled the ship to spare our lives and the ship itself. If you drop the cargo, they will deem you an unsuitable slave. Without stopping, Bringer of Light continued his work. Good, I am not a suitable slave, and they are going to learn that real quick. The still functional magnetic proximity sensor began to pulse. The human studied it briefly, speaking again. Get back in your work pod and strap in. I want you to point at their ship with your right limb and signal their distance with your left. Can you do that? The human was muttering numbers to himself and staring intently at the harpoon housing walls around the ship. The ship was little more than a one-deck flat rectangle with lifting cables on each corner and a rectangle lifting balloon on top. The six hull-mounted thrusters would normally be able to rotate independently with the aid of the now-bricked computer and gyro. Smathy wasn't even certain the ship was level given the lack of viewports and her own inability to biologically sense pitch. Still, the life of servitude, with the newfound knowledge of how valuable this human was, made denying his orders all but impossible. She had already strapped in by the time she had contemplated his actions. He had built himself a crude thruster controller and laid out each of the six cables roughly in relation to their corresponding thrusters. Additionally, he had similar crude controls of balloon deflation system and the cargo of moons. It was a mystery to her how the human had managed to orient himself to face the front of the vessel, as nothing inside the ship was oriented in relation to the exterior hull. Distance 357 mid-units holding. They are preparing to board. Spathy diligently held up her appendage towards the pirate vessel. What the human did next was disturbing. A transparent container was attached by destroyed wiring to the ceiling and deck. The human had turned its back and half-filled the container with some sort of excreted amber fluid. It was now suspended directly in front of the human sensory plate. He had also lashed himself to the deck besides his makeshift controls. Distance 106 mid-cycles, closing four units per cycle. Estimated docking port side. They are going to use the airlock. Relieved, she appreciated that they were not intending to cut the hull. They would have been needlessly expensive to repair. Right, Ringer. They appear to be reasonable economic pirates. Given your value and the unlikelihood, they are aware of your true value. Perhaps we could be ransomed for less than your remaining life. There is no need for us to cause property damage unnecessarily. Confident any creature could see the logical solution presented, Spathy allowed herself to relax her clenching plates. Spathy, I just pissed a bottle to make an attitude sensor. The amount of necessary property damage is, well, it, it's a lot. Another deep inhalation of gases and the human got to work, stealing glances at the signals Spathy was providing. The ship violently rolled ninety degrees when the human suddenly fired the starboard harpoon's disconnect switch. The next cycle of the mag sensor showed the pirates were now halted within the minimum measurable range. No doubt, confused at the bizarre situation unfolding beside them. Smathy's ship was now being stretched sideways between the weight of the cargo and the lift of the balloon. The hull had thankfully been made for even greater gravity wells and only offered minor protest at being violently jerked and pulled apart sideways. 
Adjusting her pointing to what was now the bottom of the deck, she realized the bottle was allowing the human to more accurately gauge the ship's orientation. Genius. But what came next was pure stupidity. The human connected the retraction cable to the exposed battery terminals, and without the computer to regulate speed, they simply shot back to their housing with a vicious ping that shocked the vessel harder than the torpedo had earlier. The housing wells visible from inside the ship were noticeably dented from the fall. Swarthy, direction! screamed the human. She frantically snapped her limb back to the bearing location. The human paused and quickly took stock of their harpoon wells and where the she was pointing. With one hand, he feathered the three port side thrusters, and with his other, he ripped out the fused harpoon cable, neatly flipped the cable in his nimble micro-appendages, and refired the mangled starboard harpoons that screamed back at their damaged wells. Judging by the short spool time of the harpoons, they had both hit the pirate's hull. Designed to haul up enormous quantities of cargo, the harpoons may have well pierced multiple decks after most assuredly breaching the hull. Industrial mounts would have had mechanically sensed deployment and twisted open. They were now slack, but most certainly attached deep inside the pirate's vessel. Thoroughly impressed but utterly baffled as to the purpose of this maneuver, Swathi was forced to concede that much like the pirates, she had no idea what to do now. If they destroyed her ship, the heavy lifting frame and industrial cables would likely survive, and the weight of the cargo would either rip out an entire deck or drag the ship to the crushing death in the lower atmosphere. There were now four objects absurdly joined above the hostile world's clouds, with no clear answer as to how this was going to end. Spathy was a pragmatic drone. Although she didn't know the identity of the pirates, she could guess they were Ionians, more violent than most species, but as logical as any sentient. They didn't want to die needlessly, and neither did she. The most logical answer was to drop the cargo and let the balloon lift them both into the radio contact with the corporate mining network. The pirates would be arrested and everyone would live. There was a small chance that they would simply destroy her ship and without the weight of the cargo pod, they could attempt to repair the damage caused by the harpoons and escape. However, if she offered to let them leave after safely making repairs, they would have no reason to risk firing on her and no profit in destroying her after they were released. The complexity of the situation was great, but she trusted the human had considered these factors before the suicidal maneuver. In all, she returned her gaze to the human in time to see him manually retract and deflate the balloon. All of her admiration turned to fear in an instant. This lunatic was going to kill them all. The improvised gyroscope was a frothy mess of useless bubbles. The pirate ship was now an unwilling replacement for the primary lifting balloon as Spathy's ship swung like a pendulum with a cargo container. This is all a guess, as there were no viewports to look upon the madness the human had caused. The previously slack port cables were now taut as they dragged the pirate ship down. No doubt the pirate's still active gyros and engines were frantically trying to lift and balance the massive weight of the industrial lifter and her cargo. A limitation of sign language without pheromonal signaling meant that to the human her desperate question must have translated as calm and measured. Now what? She helplessly signaled to the deranged ape looking as stunned as she felt. I guess we bring the light, he muttered to himself more than to her. Simultaneously redeploying the lifting bag and firing all six thrusters, the ship was once again violently jerked with motion. 
Without computerized guidance, the bag simply filled with its maximum capacity and continued to overflow helium till the connection was severed. The six thrusters also fired at uncontrolled full burn, rocketing them upwards. Thousands of tons of sulfide smashed into the fusion-powered interstellar ship. The containment lost eight trillion electrons freed from their confinement, shot out in every direction. Spathy would later learn that the orbital refinement center saw the flash with the naked vision. Nothing was built to survive the heat of a star, and the harpoons were vaporized along with their pirates. With nothing holding them down, the ship was pulled above the clouds. If Lightbringer's mates didn't terminate him, Smathy was seriously considering doing it herself. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1813. Story number one. They gave us only one rule, written by Kaiser 5243. Standard First Contact Protocol decrees the Federation not make itself known until the race travels to the furthest body caught in orbit around the same star as their cradle world. This practice allows species to practice interplanetary government and trade without outside influence and gives them time to get their technological sea legs, to borrow the human term, to prevent too much of a deficit compared to other races' advancements. We noticed them when they reached the planet they call Saturn, and allowed them to notice us when they landed on the 13th planet from their sun. To be honest, not many of us believed that they would ever make it that far. Competition drives the human race, being both their greatest strength and weakness. Unlike every other star-faring species, humanity is not a unified front. Each planet they inhabit is mostly independent of the others, with the population broken into a dozen of independent countries and city-states. This made first contact with them arduous and complex, since instead of dealing with one government, thousands of countries had to agree on how each planet would be represented, followed by those representatives deciding on how all of humanity would present itself to us. We waited patiently for almost an Earth decade until they presented one solitary statement. Based on the information provided by the ambassadors of the Federation, each planet government will interact directly in what they believe are to be the best interests of their local population. This being stated, the free states of humanity strongly recommend the Federation amend their constitution to prevent any race from attempting to interfere with or take advantage of any and all political adversity between two or more human governing bodies. The request was odd and, since it was merely a suggestion, ultimately denied to much protest by the human ambassador. Who was this race to demand the amendment to the Federation's constitution after such a short time? Many assumed this was a ploy out of fear or desperation at the thought of being colonized or enslaved. But then we began to see what the humans described as political adversity. The human drive to compete with one another had them in a constant state of war with themselves. Countries fought other countries, both on their planet and others, Occasional planetary wars would break out between multiple worlds, and at one point, all of humanity was split into two factions, starting a civil war that lasted almost 50 cycles. Humanity turned war into an art, and we quickly realized their strange request wasn't to protect them, but rather to keep the children that only played at war out from underfoot while the professionals worked. The chaos that was humanity drove them to constantly look for ways to advance and, to our surprise, everyone actually benefited from their need for violence. They never warred with other species, instead choosing to share and trade. 
and no one was stupid enough to antagonize them. Until the Sadnaltons. A small planet on the edge of the Sadnalton space was inhabited by humans, and part of a small conflict with another human colony of the Sadnalton government traded with. In an attempt to expand their empire, they launched a surprise invasion and conquered the planet, claiming to want to assist their allies. No species had dared try this before, and after the dust settled, we saw something none of us had seen before. Peace among the humans. Every sentient being in the universe can tell you exactly where they were and what they were doing when they received the news. The furthest reaches of the galaxy heard the humans' weapons stop firing. The stillness fell for a single day, and by the end of the next, the sad Nolten Empire was no more. The chaos that was humanity solidified in an instant, unified against an outside enemy. Hundreds of thousands of independent countries spread across hundreds of planets, lashed out in unison, as if the humans shared one mind, and by the time the Federation was able to get a grasp on the situation, the human fleets controlled over 200 Sadnalton planets, and on the morning of the third day, the humans stood before the Federation with a smile and returned everything except for the planet they had lost, asking only for damages and sharing an old human proverb. I against my brother, us against our cousin, the three of us against the world. End of... Story. Story number two. Kindred Spirits, written by Echoing Cascade. Mage Zingzor-Ur was sitting on his throne room. He was surrounded by a dozen priests and just as many guards. Zor-Ur, I sent our demons to whisper sweet nothings to the Deathworlders, as we always do. Why did it fail? The king of the Zilduk, a race of magically empowered rodents who conquered vassal species through mental manipulation. They would strengthen what they called demons, just enough to be able to enter the psyche of an alien species and slowly erode their sense of self until their mind became pliable, at which point they would absorb them into their empire without a fight. This time they had set their eyes on humanity, but when they had approached them to claim their prize, they were met by an army ready war. Now the king wanted to know what had gone wrong, hence the summoning ritual that had taken place. A faint shadowy figure appeared in front of the king, inside a ritual circle. I answer the call of my liege. The voice was weak, like that of a tired old man. My, are the humans still able to put a fight? We fed you and your kind thousands of souls. Do your job. The king was all but screaming. We invaded the mines, but what we found there was odd. The king raised an eyebrow. Explain! They had their own inner demons, and well... And well what? The lights in the room went out one by one until only a single candle, part of the ritual circle, remained as a sole source of illumination. Wet crunching sounds punctuated by screams reverberated in the throne room. The king was on the verge of panic, but he still had enough wits about him to grab a lit candle and backed himself against a wall. And well... The voice was deep, strong, malevolent, and impossibly seemed to come from behind him. We came to an understanding. The human demon then snuffed the final candle. 
The Zuldic Empire crumbled overnight, and as their vassal species regained their independence, they all felt they owed humanity the freedom. Though, when asked, they couldn't quite say why. End of story. Story number three. Humans celebrate their birthdays. Written by JCB112. Every species is well acquainted with the concept of death. It's the fate of every organic mortal being. From the moment we are born, a timer begins to tick to our eventual demise. This timer, tallied up upon every day of birth, serves as a grim reminder to the reality of our existence. And how short, how frail, and how uncompromisingly fragile our lives can truly be. Well, this day of birth, or as the Ilnishans call it, the March Towards Death Day, is a sad and somber affair. Where family and friends collect to recount tales from their past year, recollecting on mistakes and follies in order to better understand how to prepare for the increasingly shortening future. It is not a day of joy or jolly, and it is a day not worth celebrating. Yet this universally accepted concept is seemingly missing on a small, out-of-the-way world who has only very recently joined the galactic community. A world of scientists and poets and philosophers and writers. A world that has fully embraced the concept of death and instead of fearing the march towards it, seemingly celebrates it. It is a twist on the very notion of what a day of birth is. It spits in the very face of that day that we hold so close and sacrosanct to our hearts. A day of careful, purposeful, measured reflection. One where the blinds are drawn and all dress in somber colors, surrounded by soft, gentle music that encourages one to remunerate and ponder. A day where food is scarce and bland, and where all manner of beverages are replaced with simple, tasteless water. To encourage all of one's mental faculties to be devoted to that self-reflection. It was a day carefully curated and designed to pay deference to that slow but inevitable march towards the encroaching death. And it was certainly not meant to be a day of celebration. So you'll excuse me if I was rather baffled when I walked into my consulate's office one day, only to find all my human staffers lining the walls up in bright, colorful banners, candles, and other archaic implements, all flanking a veritable banquet that all served to highlight the large cake in the very middle, the likes of which had human lettering and scripts spelling out the most ghastly of words reserved for the most somber of occasions. Happy birthday, Ambassador Elnor! I was taken aback at this, indeed. I was offended for a good few minutes as they took my shock and panic in stride and sat me down in front of the cake. A pointy cone-shaped hat was soon affixed to my head, followed by a strange oral device some of them held in their hands. One that made a terrifying, high-pitched sound reminiscent of a rantor rodent. More burning candles and flares were lit up around me as the candles atop the cake were lit up one by one, each representing the years I've spent living and the years that I've been whittled away into nothing. Yet, there was something about this atmosphere that was strangely 
alluring. Whether it was the jubilant spirits or the colorful decor, something about this felt uplifting in a way. In a strange, almost unexpected way, I felt a deeper sense of connection and attachment to those who, at this specific point in time, purposefully looked beyond the prospects of death and the follies of my life, who instead all shared in the spirit of celebration for what seemed like the sake of celebration. As if it was a celebration just merely being alive. Yet to celebrate a day of birth and my march towards the grave, it still felt too taboo for me to truly wrap my head around as I glared at the chief perpetrator of all of this, my human secretary, who smiled lividly. Happy birthday, boss, the female human spoke with a certain vigor as I let out a sigh of defeat. The humans marked their march towards death with a vibrant and unrepentant celebration. They did so while seeming to be wholly indifferent to their mortality. That was what I learned from my first birthday party. They held no difference for the march towards death, and the sanctity of the day as a day of reflection. But when asked if I would come back, if I attend another such celebration, I only had one answer. Yes. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1840 The Dreamer Wakes Written by Sean Advanson The problem with nightmares is that they are processed the same way by the same equipment as the real world. To the brain, there is no difference between the sensory input from a waking world and the imagination of dreams. This has to be a dream, right? Clint asked of no one. This can't be real. But if I know it's a dream... He tried to rise in flight, but nothing happened. He tried running a takeoff, only to fall face first to the very real feeding ground. Clint stood, brushing himself off, the dark ash of the soil staining his jeans. His clothes were familiar, at least. After all, it's what he was wearing when he lay down in the soft grass and warm sun. Let everyone else crowd the parks. He was happy with the cemetery near his house, better maintained and quiet. I'm asleep on the grass under the big oak, he said to the entirety of the world around him. None of this is real, and I'm going to wake up as uh, soon as I figure out how. He turned in a full circle, looking for any kind of landmark. No trees, no buildings, no signs of life marred the rolling hills of ash-covered ground. A faint peak, far off, caught his eye. With the peak as his target, he began to walk. Faint puffs of fine ash rose from his every footfall. The only sound was his own breath and the soft sound of his steps. He checked behind himself often, ensuring that his footprints were still there. The silence dragged on him, distorting his sense of time. He began to whistle a tune, whether to fight the silence or prop his falling mood, he couldn't say. What started as a random tune began to coalesce into a song with structure, verse Chorus and Bridge made themselves known. Too bad I won't remember this when I wake up, he thought. As he walked and whistled, his brain filled in the harmonies. The song went from a jaunty walking tune to a military march, to something slightly dark in a minor key, to a dirge, and then back again. Clint wasn't tired, but he was sure he should have been. 
he stopped to look behind himself again. As his steps disappeared into the distance, far beyond that, a cloud of ash was building on the horizon. He turned to face the peak again and went back to walking. The song still rattled in his head, even though he'd stopped whistling. He was certain that he should be thirsty by now, but he felt no discomfort of any sort. As nightmares go, he thought, this one isn't too awful. Hours on, and still the peak seemed no closer. Neither did the roiling cloud of ashen dust behind him. Clint slapped his face as hard as he could. Wake up! All he could accomplish was the pain of a slap, a dance of spots before his eyes, and the dread that he would never wake from this. Now it's a nightmare, he thought. He pinched his arm, digging his nails in. It was pain, but at least he was feeling something. Clint wasn't sure how long he'd spent like that, but at some point he'd broken the skin. The trickle of blood slowly trailed down from his arm, down his thumb, and gathered at his knuckle. The pinching forgotten for the moment, he watched as blood slowly formed a drop and then fell to the ground. He watched it fall, as if in slow motion, making a splash of fine ash dust when it hit, then disappearing into the ash as though it was never there. Another followed, and then a third, before he moved to find something to put over the shallow cut. You have laid your claim, and it has been accepted, a soft voice said behind him. He spun around and saw no one there. Who said that? Your domain. What do you mean? Clint moved to press the hem of his shirt to his arm, but it had already stopped bleeding. He turned in slow circles, trying to find who might be speaking. Where we are, the voice said. I am the voice of your domain. Where are we? We are here. Is that not apparent? I mean, what is this place called? He asked. It has no name yet. That is for you to decide. Clint took a deep breath and let it out. I'm asleep in the lawn of the Oakrest Cemetery. None of this is real. I am real. You are real. What is not real, the voice said, is the thought that there is somewhere else you are. You were dreaming, but have finally awakened. Why can't I see you? Look around you, the voice said. I am everything that you see. If you would prefer an avatar, perhaps I can oblige. The sound of soft footsteps behind him brought him about. He faced a nude woman. His own height, thin, collarbones and ribs visible, ash-gray skin and hair, pale eyes set wide above broad cheekbones. That's better, I guess, sir. What's your name? I have already told you. You haven't named me yet. This form is just an avatar to make it easier for you to communicate to your domain. Does everyone have a domain? He asked. They do. But most don't wake to it, despite thousands of dreams. You're saying my life, my entire life has been a dream, and this is my reality. I am saying that all your lives have been dreams. This reality, she gestured with a sweeping arm, is waiting for you to shape it. But I don't have any control, he said. I couldn't even fly, should you be able to fly. Nothing is fixed yet. Once you make your desires known... 
physics will be defined for your realm. But you can do no such thing until you've decided what I, your domain, should be, and give me a name. But why is it covered in ash? Why does it look like a wasteland? It is not ash as you know it, the avatar said. It's raw materials. She picked up a handful and let it flow through her fingers. Clint sat cross-legged and the ashes, raw materials, he corrected himself and thought. If this world is messed up, it's my fault this time. What are all these things I wished I could have changed about Earth? Time didn't seem to move, but Clint felt that he'd been thinking for hours, days even, with the avatar of his domain silently watching. He didn't know much about physics or biology or any of that, but he thought that overall Earth was a good place to start, as he could imagine, parts of it at least. He thought of forests and mountains, wide plains and rich grasslands. Pictures of vibrant wetlands and oceans full of life flashed through his mind. All the things that made Earth beautiful and livable, minus the factories, mini malls, urban sprawl and suburban blight. He had a clear picture in his mind, a rich, lively planet with seasons and diverse climates and habitats. What to call it? I think I have a name, he said, his eyes still closed. Utopia. It will be my utopia, so I think it fits. The sound of crashing waves and the smell of moisture, slowly gaining a salt tang, brought him out of his reverie. He found himself on the shore of a vast ocean the sun rising above it. The sky turned blue as the green sheen bloomed over the water. In places where the waves lapped high, leaving behind some of the green, it spread across the land. He turned to Utopia's avatar, her flesh filled out, her hips growing white, breasts filling. Her skin began to change, turning to a rich green, beginning with her feet, moving up. By the time her eyes shone emerald, the hills beyond, were full of trees. Clint knew, without looking, that the seas teemed with life that changed and advanced faster than he could process. Soon the land began to fill with animals. There were pressures that forced change on the plants and animals. Volcanoes, floods, earthquakes. But they were minor, over in a flash, and necessary to make Utopia work. You're beautiful, he said, as much to the world as he's to her avatar, that stood before him. Utopia turned to gaze at him. I can be nothing but, she said, as I am how you have made me. What happens now? he asked. If you wish to let the sleepers dream in your world, you can. You don't need to, but it is allowed. Will they be humans? They will be as my environment shapes them, but I, or even you, cannot force their form. I worry about war. And the destruction of the environment, he said. Look around you, Utopia said with a sweep of her arm. I've already weathered ice ages and splitting and rejoining of continents and eons of change. I'm still here and still healthy. Clint thought for a moment. Or was it a millennium? Let the dreamers in. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1815 Story number one, The Compassion for a Child, written by Random3x. I looked down from my throne room, watching the day's events go by. 
the usual requests and such. I grant the more reasonable ones, such as lowering of taxes for grains to increase food for the common folk. Others I reject, like forging a ring to rule them all. I already rule all. Why do I need a ring for that? It is when we get to the latter part of the day, where the common folk who have gone through the procedures to make requests much like their lords, sometimes it is simple as just being granted an audience. Sometimes it is a report of a noble or for corrupt behavior. Others still wish to interview me for school projects. I'll be honest, I do enjoy those. So when the first I saw the child step forward from the queue, I thought not too much on the matter. It must have been a student with the research, someone you idolize. I prepared myself to give magnanimous acceptance when they spoke. Mr. Uh, Dark Lord, I gestured to the guards to ignore the impropriety. I always try to instill in my guards not to make mistake matters with what can easily be attributed to ignorance. Regardless, I tried my best to lessen my battle presence so the child could speak freely. M Mr. Dark Lord, I challenge you to a duel to the death, the child announced, drawing a magically conjured blade from the air. This was not my first time seeing the technique, though it is the first with someone so young. Pardon, I asked, completely bewildered. I will strike you down and bring peace to the world. The child that I can now clearly see as a girl doesn't falter, even when my guards hold the spear to her neck. Or are you so scared that you won't face me? Her sly smirk held the promise of a nightmarish teenager she would no doubt become. However, I could only exhale a deep sigh. I am not in the business of fighting kids to the death. I gestured with my hand for my guards to stand down. Even now, it is clear how outclassed she is. You scared? No, not scared. More of a moral issue, really. Tell you what, though, we can have a sparring match. If you do happen to accidentally kill me, well, it happens. I offer the child, who readily accepts. The court watching this was shocked I had accepted. I could have crushed her without even twitching a muscle. My gods could have easily run her through. But I felt more of a need to find out why she was here. Rising from my throne, I led the way to the courtyard where we would spar. Let me ask you, why do you wish to kill me? Surely I haven't done something to you or your family. I asked conversationally as we walked side by side while the courtiers followed. Her, um, she seemed rather bashful now. The, the, the high bishop said that I was the chosen one and that I would be destined to save the world. So they shipped me here to kill you for being an inhuman monster. I paused mid-step for a second before continuing. I was shocked, to my core, to think that the theocracy would do such a thing. Also, did they really think I wasn't human? Sure, I had risen to rule the Dark Continent, but any sufficiently skilled being could do that. Regardless, I couldn't help but press further. What are you, Twelve? They would give you the so-called Chosen One title to one as young and innocent as you. Bah! And they call me evil and barbaric. I'm thirteen. She seemed indignant at not being referred to as a teenager. Regardless, it seems needless to send a child assassin to kill me. At the very least, did they trade you? Nah, 
I manifested the sword first out of all the street urchins, and they sent me here. Her explanation broke my heart. Arriving in the courtyard, I stood opposite her, hands empty. You're gonna draw a weapon? She seemed rather sporting for a child assassin. No, this is fine. I want to make this as easy as possible for you. I shrugged as I stood ramrod straight, hands behind my back, waiting for her to strike. You may begin when the handkerchief lands on the ground. The chief chamberlain's words echoed around the courtyard. Holding this piece of cloth aloft, he released it. Watching it flutter to the ground, I waited. The moment it touched, I released my full battle presence. The girl was already midway across the yard at that point, an impressive feat in and of itself. But now she felt the full brunt of how dangerous I was. In the few seconds that followed, everything seemed to slow. I could see it. The blood vanished from her face. The terror grew as she tried to stop her charge. But it was too late. Her momentum was far too great. Finally, her eyes rolled to the back of her head as she collapsed unconscious. Get the physician to check her. She'll now be a ward of mine. My announcement was met with apathy more than any other emotion from the courtiers. Another stray assassin to adopt, sire. You know one of these days that compassion will get you killed, the Chamberlain said, sidling up next to me. I don't doubt it will, but to die due to compassion is a far better way to go than most. End of story. Story number two. Memento Mori, written by Teller of Tall Tales. I couldn't peel my eyes off the stuffed animal strapped to the human's armor. It looked like an earth lion. The mane matted with blood. As we sat in our trench, waiting for the whistle, I struck up a conversation with the human. I asked him why he had a stuffed toy strapped to his armor. A soft expression came to his eyes as he gently touched the top of the toy's head before speaking. Memento mori, an old human phrase. It means to remember that you must die. Maybe not now, but eventually. He fell quiet again, stroking the small stuffed animal, a soft, sad smile on his face. His words, however, had horrified me. How do you walk around a warza with the talisman of your own death? I have, to borrow another phrase the humans taught me, suck-started my mauser. There was a call by the trench commander, and the human donned his helmet, affixing a blade to the end of his firearm, and stood on one of the benches, poking. From the muddy walls. I saw him give the lion a squeeze, then the commander blew his whistle, and over the edge we went. The carnids were moving straight at us as well, fast, faster than I could ever hope to run in all the opposite direction. They resembled Earth's praying mantis, if the praying mantis was eleven feet tall and had a carapace as hard as forged steel. The human opened fire still a few dozen yards away, Tungsten penetrators ripping through a brightly colored Praetorian. There was no anger, just a serene expression of peace on that soft, gently rounded face. We hit the carnids halfway across no man's land. One immediately swiped at me as I aimed for its compound eyes before pulling the trigger on my laser rifle, burning the eyes from the sockets and sending the carnid reading back but not for long as it lurched forward, a massive scythe-like claw smashing to my armor, knocking the breath from my lungs as I was thrown to the ground. Dazed, 
I tried to crawl away as the carnage drew closer, closing in for the kill. Accepting my fate, I rolled over and gazed at the two sights raised over me like death himself had been incarnate. Worm! Some insane or perhaps brave soldier had tackled the carnage off its four spindly legs and was thrashing with it on the ground, a folding military shovel rising and falling in a chopping motion as I caught a glimpse of the stuffed lion. The human wailed on the carnage, those scythe-like claws flailing inches away from the human sides and back. With the mighty two-handed swing, the entrenching shovel was brought down on the carnage's face, making it spasm and finally go limp. The human turned. I tried to scream a warning, but it was too late as a carnage rose behind him, a mandible and antenna missing. The scythe-like claw sliced through the human's armor like a hot knife through butter, impaling him through the chest and ripping a strap that held the lion in place. The human looked surprised a moment at the massive claw in his chest. Then, that horrible, peaceful smile as he coughed up blood. He grabbed the blast spear from his belt and armed it, letting his thumb slide off the button. More carnids were approaching, drawn to the scent of fresh blood as the human was lifted higher off the ground. The human said something, lips moving silently at this distance before a flash of light and the crash of explosion enveloped him and the carnage. The only thing left behind being cinders, ash, and the stuff line was something poking out the back of it. I crawled a few arm lengths through the mud and picked up the line, slowly removing the glossy bit of paper from the pocket in the back. It was a photograph. The human, his arms wrapped around a smiling female human. The female's arms wrapped around a human child. The child's arms wrapped around a small, stuffed lion. Written at the bottom was five dates in galactic standard format and a note. 25 25-7-21-56 to 11-3-21-85. 9-11-21-80 11-3-21-85. Remember what they took from you. Remember what they took from them. Memento Mori, your day will come. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1816. The First Human Mage at the Academy. Written by Random3x. January 4th, Year 016. Angel's Descent. Alex took his first step onto the Academy grounds. Ostensibly, he was there to become Lord Sloth's apprentice, though that did not mean that he was welcome in any shape or form, especially as he was the first human on record ever to attend this illustrious academy of all things magic. His first impression of the school was magnificent. It was artistic in all the right ways to inspire awe and reverence in any body student. His second, however, was how isolating it felt. He could feel the glares from all angles and every race other than my own. Really, though, had they not publicized his attendance, he could have gotten educated without issue. For instance, so many of the races here looked no different than he did. Everything from demons to werebeasts, even a few vampires, countless humanoids. But no, his master had to announce a human was attending and even go so far as to display a large portrait of him. Mongrel, 
A silver-haired werewolf snarled at as Alex walked past him. His quip seemed exceedingly witty to the crowd of sycophants as they all burst into laughter. What exactly can a human mage do? <laughs> Mongrel, he added in another quip to another round of laughter. But Alex paid it no mind, however. He had been an adventurer since he was eight and fought terrifying monsters that make grown men wet themselves. Petty words would do nothing to his morale. Walking around the campus and through the few buildings, he came to an isolated structure, an aptly named High Danger Research Building. This was where he would receive instruction from the greatest living mage of all time. Open the door, he stepped in only to have the crossbow bolt slam into the doorframe right next to his head. Whoa, you didn't even flinch, a cheery voice said from the gloom of the room. The bolt was shot. What Alex didn't have the heart to admit was that he had frozen in terror, so it was not a conscious effort. So you are the human, I take it? The cheery voice continued as she walked into the light. She appeared to be about twelve years old, however, knowing the other races judging on appearance was pointless. That I am, he replied, trying to keep his cool. She just snorted derisively, as if the blasé reply was nothing to her. For all he knew, it probably was. Come now, you. Don't bully the boy. An old haggard voice said from behind him. Alex, for his part, was shocked as he hadn't noticed his presence at all. He could only wonder, when did Master get there? Yes, Master, she replied quickly, lowering her head in respect. Now, Alex, I know your time here will be difficult. But I expect great things from my newest apprentice, Lord Sloth said with a smile, oozing with the knowledge he knew full well Alex would be experiencing hell. Now you show Alex your latest creation, Sloth ordered. You stood to attention, saluted and turned on the light in the dark room she was previously in. Upon the wall was a clockwork creation. Each gear was covered in runes. Alex instantly knew what it was supposed to be. It was a reality engine. Artificers had only theorized about them. He could only wonder if she had created them. As he looked it over, though, he noticed a few things. Brilliant, isn't it? You said with a prideful smile, as if waiting for Alex's praise. In theory, uh, but a lot of your runes will clash, and this thing here won't work at all. Alex explained pointing to a few gears with which he could see Yu's gaze narrow. Sloth, however, just laughed as he turned to leave Yu and Alex alone in the room. Yu herself had a stunned look on her face, her jaw hanging low. No one has spoken of my work like that, Yu said in disbelief. Really? Alex asked in equal disbelief. This was meant to be an institute for learning. Feedback was necessary for growth. She just nodded. Half the dimwits who see it don't know what it is. The other half that does don't care to say anything is wrong with the work of Sloth's apprentice. You said with a mad grin. Human, I like you. Will you help me with my research? You seem clever enough. You said, offering her hand to him. Only if you'll help me with mine, Alex replied, taking the hand and returning with his own mad grin. January 18th, year 018, Angel's Descent. It had been a little over two years since Alex first came to the academy. His research had gone leaps and bounds forward. 
He and you became fast friends to the point that they were basically each other's research partners. If not for her, he'd undoubtedly have issues casting, having lost three fingers on his right hand during a backlash explosion from a failed spell. It's a good thing I'm ambidextrous, Alex muttered, giving his new fingers a reflective squeeze. Lately, their master had ordered them to actually mingle with the other students. They could only wonder why, as they were looked upon with envy and contempt. Alex, for the sin of being human, and you for being the youngling dwarf, they couldn't fathom why the two were chosen for the great honor while they languished in mediocrity. Their master, however, had given them a strict rule to abide by. Regardless of the situation, they were not permitted to strike back at any other student using their magic. It seemed to be wished to... It seemed he wished to test their resolve that, or he was just a grumpy bastard. It appeared, however, he was discounting the fact that they had both literally blown off limbs in their research and only stopped to replace them with artificial ones. Walking through the grounds, Alex and you went on a tour through the various departments inspecting the student experiments. For a few students that were positively inclined to them or are simply hoping to garner favor, eagerly showing them their work. Childish, you scoffed, looking at the experiments on display. Alex was inclined to agree. This was the stuff that they were doing before even coming here. He couldn't help but wonder why the students were so proud of it. Hey, mongrel, who let you out of the kennel? A haughty voice snarled behind him. It was the same werewolf who insulted him on his first day. The werewolf's name was Celis, a well-known prodigy and eldest son of the sinful Lord of Pride, much to the duo's chagrin. Celis seemed to think that gave him the same status. I believe that it was your mother when she invited me to your her bedchamber, Alex replied snarkily. All at once, the room went so deathly quiet, you could hear the pin drop. Celis's eyes were burning in fury. Think you're funny, do you? Celis barked at him. I'm only as funny as you think you are, Alex replied with a nonchalant shrug. I will kill you, Celis screamed, charging at Alex, his hand already changing to a claw. The pair had developed a skill in their few years of blowing themselves up, impeccable reactions. So Alex easily sidestepped Celis's slow and clumsy movements, but Celis didn't let up. He kept up the wild assault. Alex knew that he could so easily squash him, had their master not forbidden them from doing so. What's wrong, human can't use magic? <laughs> Celis sneered, letting up his assault. Alex just shrugged. You're not wrong. I can't use magic, Alex admitted, leaving out that it was due to an order rather than inability. Celis, however, reading the situation the way he wanted, just laughed his head off at this declaration. <laughs> you, how did you become Lord Sloth's apprentice? I'll never know. But know this, you will never amount to anything. You and your peasant human blood dirty these holes, he said with a final sneer before turning back to join his cronies. You walked up to stand beside Alex and leant in as best she could with the height difference. Want me to put a bomb in his privy? She asked. Alex just shook his head. No point in retaliating. This was just the kid's argument. No need, you, but I appreciate the thought. But when he talks like that, I just remember an old saying, What's that? That no one can make you feel bad without your consent. Damn. 
Fortune Cookie Dock. February 24th, Year 19, Angel's Descent. There was talk about the Academy, about Lord Sloth having created a brand new spell of unbelievable power. One so strong, it cut a clean hole through the indomitable wall. Little did they know, it was Alex who had done it. Lord Sloth himself even said the feat was such that he'd grant Alex's family name. This was the highest honor he could ever hope for. Noah's word spread about the Academy. Celis and his cronies seemed to be attempting a concentrated campaign against him. There had been leaving trap runes and various other attacks for Alex to trigger. It wouldn't have been a real threat if they weren't so poorly made. When he consulted his master, Sloth maintained his rule that Alex was forbidden to retaliate until at least the graduation combat arena. When asked why, Sloth pointed out Alex was already a continental-class mage, meaning his magic could affect an entire continent. In contrast, Celis was barely an average battle mage, in Sloth's own words. Why would a mountain bother itself with a grain of sand? Well, pithy, Alex felt he must act. It is only a matter of time until one of Celis's traps is triggered by another student. When he spoke to you about this, she kindly offered to kill Celis in a way that could never be traced back to them. Alex felt it was a bit of an extreme offer, mind you, but he decided to keep his wits about him and bide his time. Another development for Alex was he had also taken on a tutoring role to help the already stretched thin staff. He had taken on the task of teaching the fundamentals to toddlers and kids pre-elemental age, a job wildly considered only the most brave or insane teacher would take. Alex, however, found it fulfilling. Though he still shuddered at this image after seeing the previous teacher for the class, with half her hair burnt away and the stains of... Uh, he honestly didn't know what... But it stank. September 16th, Year 20, Angel's Descent. It was finally graduation time. Through careful manipulation of the ordering, Alex had been paired against Celis. After he blew up the classroom, Alex taught him, he swore, that he would make Celis regret making him an enemy. He was only grateful the kids weren't in the room at the time. So the only thing lost was the part of his left leg. He still had to contain a chuckle, remembering going to the infirmary, Thanks to his um, history with exploding, the nurses were very familiar with him. The head matron spent the entire time stitching him up as an excuse to scold him. Looking out across the arena, Alex could see Celis boasting and soaking in the crowd's applause. It seemed that he was popular despite that disagreeable personality of his. Impatient for the event to begin, Alex lightly tapped his left foot, which was a new artificer limb you had developed. The teacher near the entrance gestured for him to come into the arena. As he stepped out onto the arena, the whole place went quiet. There were only two people loudly cheering. Elisa Ironwood, a new and very close friend Alex had made in the past year, and you. The pair seemed to be blatantly ignoring that the crowd was shooting them death glares completely. Regardless, it was finally time to show them what a human mage could do. This shall be an honorable duel between mages, the proctor began. Then we can declare this my win, as he cannot use magic, Celis announced with a sneer, raising his arms as if to indicate to the crowd now was the time to laugh. The proctor turned to face Alex. Is it true you cannot use magic? 
he asked pointedly. I can use magic. I was just forbidden from using it because I'd kill anyone I'd use it on. This was a direct order from my master, Lord Sloth. Alex replied loud enough for everyone to hear. It was plain to see Seller's face begin to pale, while the proctor just nodded understandingly. I see. A safe order. So I can prepare the correct spectator defensive array. What was your mage grade and class? He asked. Grade 5, Continental Class. Alex's answer only made the silence almost seem loud. Looking around the audience, Alex could see many pale faces in the crowd now. Celis's cronies, who were jeering only moments ago, were already making themselves scarce. Understood. Begin when I have left the arena. The proctor nodded, making his own hasty retreat. No one will believe your lies, Mungrel. Celis snarled as his usual tone. However, it seemed more desperate than previously. A loud bell rang to indicate the start. Celis reached into his pocket to produce the reagent's packet, a small folded piece of paper with everything a spell needed to activate. With it in hand, he looked at Alex expectantly. Loomis Rex, Alex chanted. Ha ha ha! Celis laughed loudly. You expect to beat me with the most basic light spell, any mage's tour. His voice trailed off as he saw the light trace the shape of a magic circle. Okay, Celis. I hope you survive this. Alex smiled as the mana density around him began to build. Celis himself could no longer stand under the weight of the force of Alex was exuding. With a light tap of a finger against the circle, he launched his attack at him. All at once, Celis's body was surrounded by the spell. A blinding light enveloped the whole arena, blinding everybody watching. When the light cleared, everyone looked on in shock. Do you concede? Alex asked pleasantly, in the same tone many would confidently ask a girl out. The reason for his tone became apparent as a few snickers and muffled giggles began to ring out amongst the audience. Celis, back on his feet, shook his fists in rage. Alex had transmogrified his clothes into a beautiful ball ground. He wasn't even kind enough to change Celis's very impressive wand into a parasol and a circlet into a frilly bonnet. The onlookers were entirely free from their stunned shock by the peal of snorting laughter coming from Alyssa and you. As if the dam burst, the entire crowd burst into laughter. Celis's face immediately grew to a deep shade of red. You bastard! He screamed. I will kill you for this! He squealed while picking his packet back up and beginning to chant to summon a fireball. Alex repeated his light trick, this time summoning a small fireball of his own. While Celis was still chanting, Alex launched a fireball at his hand, targeting the packet itself. With a large blast, Celis was thrown backwards. Watching this, Alex surmised Celis must have favored blasting powder as a reagent, a common practice as it could be useful in other mediums compared to a dragon's eyelash. Listen, Celis, I wasn't kidding about the possibility of you dying. I give it up while you still have a little pride left, Alex calmly said trying to get him to back down. I will never surrender to a human. I may not win here today, but I will make sure you suffer. I'll start with your woman, and maybe even your precious students. I will kill them all. Celis screamed at a rant, seemingly oblivious to his missing hand. Okay, I've had enough of this. 
Any mercy Alex had left vanished when Celis threatened his students. Holding his hand out, he summoned a pair of light magic circles, but this time he merged them into one rotating structure. This was how he had broken the hole in the indomitable wall. Spell merging, Celis shouted, eyes widening in abject terror. I'll only take your other hand, then shatter your mana core, after which you won't be able to do magic ever again. Alex's voice would have chilled eyes. With the lightest of gestures, he launched a considerable ball of magic energy at Celis's remaining hand. Celis fell to the ground, unconscious. He was missing both hands and in a dress. The arena was dead quiet. No one dared say a word. Looking around the crowd at everyone, all the people who disparaged him spoke of him as if something lesser. He had bested the top mage in the academy, and Celis hadn't even been able to counter him. Now, they knew what a human mage like he could do. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1817 Story number one. To dance like no one is watching. Written by Random 3X Ocula was doing his routine nightly checks on the crew quarters, ensuring no one was up to mischief. Usually, he would find an odd game of black tack being played. Maybe join them if it was a quiet night. But no such luck so far. Everyone who was durinol was sleeping, arriving at the next door on his list to check. He could hear muffled thumping. His mind in that instant began to race. He was the head of security, but this was a basic passenger liner. The most he ever had to handle was a slightly too inebriated passenger. But the thudding and sounds coming out of the cabin sounded like an almighty scuffle. Pausing to take a breath, Ocula reassessed the situation. The human would have called for help if they were being attacked, so why could he hear such noises? Maybe the human was, uh... Ocula shook his head, instantly rejecting that thought. That was not something he would want to picture, nor could he imagine him doing. The human droned on about his wife, children, and loyalty to that bond. Resolving himself, he slid the door a small amount and was shocked by what he was seeing. The human was in the sleepwear, but he was not in his bed. He was standing in the center of his room, his back to the door with a pair of headphones bobbing his head. Every so often, his body would twitch and pulse. Ocula was mesmerized. The human was bobbing its head rhythmically as he began to turn in a circle on the floor before finally facing the door. It was now that Ocula could see the human's eyes were closed. The sound coming from the headphones started to increase in volume as the human began gently bouncing on the spot. The muffled sound of the music was enough to even make Ocula start to bob its head. It was in an incomprehensible language. Then the human paused its bouncing and then held out his right arm, followed by his left. With a swift motion, he flipped his arms so the back was facing upwards. Ocula could feel the song's soul calling him but he resisted interrupting what must be a religious ceremony of great importance. With smooth movements, the human crossed its arms across its chest. Then again, one hand on each side of its head and then corresponding arm side. Nocula could feel his pulse quicken as the music tried to seize him again. But he resisted as he watched the human recross his arms, resting on the opposite hips. Again, with a swift motion, he moved his arms to the corresponding hips and gave his hips a spin. To finish it off, 
He jumped in the air and spun 90 degrees to his right. Ocular could recognize the human had started the motions and chose the smoke to step in. Human Allen, it's late. Um, you should be in recuperation mode. Ah! Allen stumbled backwards half a step as his face instantly began to redden. Is something the matter, Human Allen? Your face has become rather red. It's not, nothing. Allen stammered as he tried to shut off his headphones. Before he could, Ocula could hear one of the religious chants. Eh, Macarena. I apologize if this was a religious ceremony. Ocula lowered his head in apology. What, what? No, 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 it, it, no, it's not that. Alan's face began to go a deeper shade of red. I'm practicing embarrassing dancing. Embarrassing dancing? Ocula repeated. Yes, uh, I've told you about my kids, right? Yes, many, many, many times. Well, uh. It's a dad's duty to embarrass the kids with lame jokes and, uh, bad dancing. It's a rule, you know, but, well, uh, it's hard to practice when you traded in a six-pack for a keg years ago. Alan gave a good-natured chuckle as he slapped his belly. And that was the dance that you were doing? Macula asked. Yes, it's an oldie, but uh, it's still fun and easy. Alan replied with a nod. May, uh, may, may I participate, uh? The music called to my very being, and that was only what I could hear. And knowing such simple motions could be made in conjunction with it makes it all the more pleasing. Ocula near begged, I guess? Alan replied unsurely, okay, first uh, you do this. Ocula began mimicking the motions that he had only seen a moment ago. And when the singer goes, eh, Macarena, you jump and turn at the same time. Let's do this. Ocula declared with determination as the music started up again. End of story. Story number two. An unfortunate accident written by Rednull 97. Yasin was bored out of his mind. He was a pilot on the Aryan logistics freighter, Transport 18. It was a well-paying job, but except for the starts and landings. It was about as interesting as the name of the ship he was currently steered. So he sat in his chair, on his private handhold, playing some mobile games. The offline versions, of course. After all, there's no Wi-Fi warm. When suddenly, a soft ping commanded his attention. What in the name of a... We got incoming! His human co-pilot, Mark, remained calm. What are you on about? We're in interstellar space. What should we have incoming? Yasin took a few breaths to calm down a bit before he answered. No idea. I'm just telling you that what the computer told me. I'm already running a scan. Mark tapped around his toe while absentmindedly answering. Yes, you do that, but it's probably just a false positive. We're out in the middle of nowhere. According to the nav, its next location of interest is about 900 light years away. An old battle site from the battle about... Uh, oh, no. Uh, that's no coincidence. Uh, from a battle about a thousand years ago. For that distance, that's about travel time for, uh... Sublight kinetics! Yasin interrupted with a panicked tone. Sensors show four projectiles, two solid slugs, two high explosives, speed at about 0.9c. Impact in T-minus ten seconds. Starting in base of maneuvers. Too late for that. This thing's a one-kilometer-long freighter, not a 25-meter fighter. Well, the good news is that the HE are probably long dead. They are so old, they must likely long since gone inert. 
injected Mark with a slight humor in his voice. Yesim could only respond, That's so. There any bad news with that? Uh, yep, uh, the kinetic energy alone, if completely converted, would equate to several nukes, uh, if we're lucky. They'll hit nothing that puts up too much of a resistance and therefore only obliterates most of the ship. Feck you, Isaac! And with a large explosion, everything went at first blinding white, and then pitch black. The next thing Yasim knew was waking up in one of the cargo holds. The human next to him, talking to one of the other crew members. Mark, uh, what's going on? Oh good, you're finally awake. Uh, don't make a Skyrim joke now. After the shells hit, I took you and the other crew down here into the cargo hold 5. They're all alive, uh, more or less. Well, but this here is the only airtight room left, and while the engines seem to be fine, the fuel tanks are completely dry. So for now, we're stuck here. Yasim sank back into his makeshift bed. Great! So we're alive, but stranded in minimal provisions. Air for about, what, a week? I managed to send out an SOS, but we both know how likely it is for out here for someone to receive it, and... And, uh, if they do, they'll think it's a trap and ignore it. Mark let out a chuckle. Yeah, it's not the best of situations, but there is still one small possibility to make it out alive. The cargo. The cargo? But it's sealed. We have no idea what's in there. And the company policy, that's why it's only a small possibility. And do you really care about company policy right now? Yasub wanted to counter with something before he conceded. Point taken. So let's see, cargo hold five, input password. Ah! Ah, Brock, it's some kind of beverage. Uh, that doesn't help us. Mark took the handhold, studied it for a few seconds before erupting into laughter like a maniac. <laughs> you have no idea. This is exactly what we needed. What? Have you gone insane? Well, will this drink help us? Well, you see, that drink was destined for a human colony. It's called Everclear, and is about 95% ethanol by volume. So essentially, it's better than rocket fuel, than our original rocket fuel. And a bit of jury rigging, and we'll be back in civilized space in no time. End of story. Story number three. Heroic Last Stand, written by Echoing Cascade. Sam could hear the creature getting closer. It's just around the corner. Why did it have to attack now that the bus is out? Every fiber of his being told him to run, to hide every instinct that there is no winning this fight. Sam took a quick look behind him and saw the infant in its cage, and with a Herculean effort of will, stood his ground. If he thinks it can get him without a fight, he is going to be disappointed. As the creature and its whirling blades of death rounded the corner, Sam roared his defiance and readied himself for his last stand. Then everything went quiet. Wait, what? Before he could wonder what had happened, a giant warm hand petted his head, and he knew things would be okay. Emma was vacuuming the house when she entered her son's room. There was a young puppy, Sam, trembling like a leaf in a gale storm, Stadcrop, mocking, protecting the infant. She turned the vacuum cleaner, petted the brave little dog, and decided she would use the broom instead. Sir Orr wiped away a tear from his eyes. He had been sent to evaluate if humanity was worth uplifting, 
and he had watched the whole scene from his invisible perch. He began to write his report. Well, they Jerry is still out of humanity. Dogs are very much worthy of uplifting, and since they are a package deal, I guess humanity is worthy too. He stopped to think for a second and added, P.S. I feel there is a need to keep an eye out for cats, though. They are clearly up to something. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1818 The Trouble with Tacos Written by Destroyer Tron Mark 8 Now you telling me, Ambassador Hill asked slowly, that you caused an intergalactic incident with your ass? Are you really surprised at that? Ambassador Honeypot gave him a naughty grin. She turned to display the part in question, meeting his eyes with parted lips and a come-hither stare. I mean, have you seen this thing? Her uniform was tight, perfectly outlining the posterior that could launch a thousand ships. She wriggled in his direction. Ambassador Hill spared a moment to thank God his keen diplomatic instincts that he had been sitting down at his desk when she arrived. He'd been working with Miss Honeypot for two years now, and she'd noticed his attraction fairly early. She teased him mercilessly at every opportunity. Mr. Hill did his best to ignore it. If he secretly wished the woman's flirtatious banter was an indication of something deep, he would never be so foolish as to admit it. She was a colleague, and he was a professional. Still, a man could dream. Vanessa Honeypot was a vision, and she knew it. Curly red hair, eyes like emerald fire, and a body so perfect he'd had her background investigated for genetic tamper. He'd found none, but he did learn that Honeypot wasn't her original lost name. She'd had it legally changed. Her English accent was an affectation as well, but it was one that worked for her. She had a voice that could melt tungsten. Ambassador Hill took a moment to center himself. It was important that he remained calm. Miss Honeypot might be all flirtatious bravado now, but three hours ago she'd been crying, terrified mess. Not that he blamed her. This isn't time for jokes, he chided. It took months to get the Grecht and the Hoth to agree to negotiate. Now both sides are threatening war. The Grecht and the Hoth were all members of the Greft species, but a schism in their government had caused a civil war that had gone on for nearly a century. Peace is such a fragile thing, Honeypot remarked. We both know the ceasefire wasn't going to last. The ceasefire is still in effect, Hill told her. They're threatening to go to war with us. Oh, Honeypot's cheerful facade crumbled for a moment, revealing genuine worry. What the hell happened down there? Ambassador Hill didn't really want to press the woman, but he'd needed to know. The extraction team gave me the initial report, but it didn't make a lot of sense. It was... Ambassador Honeypot's lips trembled for a moment, then she sighed. She looked down. It, uh, it was Taco Tuesday. Taco Tuesday? Oh no! Ambassador Honeypot was easily the most beautiful, charming, and self-assured woman he'd had the pleasure to work with. But she had one major, glaring, flaw: Gas. Her flatulence was legendary. Ambassador Hill didn't know what combination of gut bacteria was responsible, but he did know that the gassy honeypot was the raunchiest, most potent, most horrifying series of smells he had ever experienced. On their last assignment, the Valnian envoys had referred to her as Lafalou Lalach. She'd been tickled pink when they told her it meant Mistress of the Flaming Hair. 
and Master hadn't had the heart to tell her what it really meant. Mistress of the deadly gases. Ugh, tell me you didn't, Ambassador Hill implored. We were in the lift, Honeypot explained. You know how both envoys insisted on going together. Neither side wants to be kept waiting, and God forbid they take separate elevators and one arrives before the other. So we were all crammed in together. And, uh, you had to, Ambassador Hill trailed off. Please, God, let this not be what he thought. I, uh, I had tacos, Honeypot huffed. It was a crowded elevator. I didn't think they'd know it was me. But they did, Hill guessed. And they were offended. No, no, not exactly, Honeypot grimaced. When they smelled it, uh, they, they, they sort of got excited. Excited? Hill's brow frowned. Uh, yes, Honeypot flushed. She must still be pretty rattled if she was allowing herself to blush. They were just sniffing at first. Uh, but, but after a few seconds, she sighed up. They all uh, started tearing each other's clothes off. Ambassador Hill blinked. No, no, really, Honeypot insisted. They went mad. Everyone on the lift started pawing and grunting. And then Lord Regent grabbed me and I just, uh, her eyes watered for just a moment. I hit the panic button. The diplomatic corps took the safety of its ambassadors very seriously. When Ambassador Honeypot activated her panic button, a strike team was dispatched within seconds. In under a minute, they had forced their way into the elevator. They'd shot the Lord Regent of Hoth as well as several members of both diplomatic envoys, and pulled the ambassador and her staff out. They'd used non-lethal stun pistols, thank God, but it was still a terrible mess. Ambassador Hill took a breath. Let me see if I have this straight. You farted in a cramped elevator, and it started an orgy? Yes. Then the Lord Regent of the Hoth tried to force himself on you. Honeypot breathed out through her nose and nodded. Yes. And then you hit the panic button, and the strike team busted in and, uh, shot him. She looked down at the deck. Yes. Holy hell! Ambassador Hill sagged in his desk, rubbing his temples. He didn't get stress headaches, but he really felt like this time he should. I'm sorry, said Honeypot. I didn't mean for... It's not your fault, Hill cut her off. Hitting the panic button was the right thing to do. And how the hell does a fart cause an orgy? I... I don't know, Honeypot admitted. Pheromones? Do, do pheromones even come from there? I don't think so, said Hill. I guess that why is something for this science team to figure out. In the meantime, we need to find a way to fix this. Ambassador Hill continued to rub his temples. If we blow the street, he will be lucky to get a job somewhere with paper hats and a fryer. He didn't mention that losing their jobs was a secondary concern. The Valtrix Union was pressing the Alliance hard. Stopping a civil war and getting the greft on their side could be the difference between victory and subjugation. Don't worry, Ambassador Honeypot said. I won't let you get sacked on my behalf. This is my mess. I'll take full responsibility. Me both will, Ambassador Hill decided. I won't let you do it alone. You're too important to me. Either we'll work this out together, or we'll both find a place with paper hats. Ambassador Honeypot stared at him for a moment. She looked oddly vulnerable. I'm important to you. I didn't think you even liked me. Of course I like you. Hill spoke without thinking. 
I like you so much it... Uh, he stopped himself, but he knew that it was too late. Honeypot's eyes went wide. Hill panicked. He cleared his throat and said, <coughs> I mean, uh, you're a valued colleague. Vanessa Honeypot clicked the button on the inside of her wrist, activating her ocular implants. The implants were one of the secret weapons of the Alliance's diplomatic core. They allowed the user to read biometrics and determine another being's emotional state. Using them on a fellow ambassador was a serious breach of etiquette, but Joe Hill was more concerned about what she'd find. Don't! He started to warn her off, but she'd already done it. Oh my god! Vanessa's stare changed to shock. She knew. Two years of careful control, passing all his phrases, painstakingly modulating his body language, all thrown away for half a careless sentence. Joe cursed himself. Then he panicked. Then he wrestled with himself back under control. They were grown-ups, professionals. I wish you hadn't done that, he told her. I know this makes things awkward, but I'd like to think that we can still work together. You're an idiot, Vanessa smirked. Joe blinked. Ah, uh, his words failed him. What? Joe, Vanessa chided. You are one of the most accomplished diplomats in the Corps, trained to read body language of over a hundred alien species. And you can't figure out when a girl likes you. Ambassador Honeypot, Joe started. Vanessa, Honeypot insisted. Call me Vanessa, you big dumb lug. Okay, Vanessa, Joe swallowed. Uh, the thing is... He didn't know what he would have to say next. The office phone rang and interrupted his train of thought. Joe recognized the number and answered. Duchette, what do you have for me? Incoming transmission from Hoth, Ambassador. Jane Duchette reported. Now of all times. Joe shook himself. Getting the peace deal back on track was far more important than his own personal affairs. Patch him through. I have Ambassador Honeypot here as well. Duchette knew that already but the reminder would ensure he warned the Hoth ambassador. Ambassador Hill quickly retrieved a spare chair and sat it next to his. Ambassador Honeypot sat, and Hill invactivated the viewscreen. Ambassador Oolong's stern visage filled the viewscreen. The Greft regarded his fellow ambassadors with a cold aloofness Ambassador Hill had come to expect. He ran three fingers across his forehead. Greetings to you, he said stiffly. Greetings to you, Ambassador, Ambassador Hill returned formally, mirroring the gesture. He was tempted to lead off with an apology, but decided to see what the Griff had to say first. To what do I owe the pleasure of this call? Ambassador Oolong's lips twisted before he forced himself back to emotionless formality. I wish to inform you that the Lord Regent has recovered. He asked me to express his apologies for his behavior toward Ambassador Honeypot during the incident... The Greft pressed a thumb to the bridge of his nose. Tell him I accept the apology. Honeypot was every inch of the assured diplomat. No trace of her earlier feelings could be seen. She placed her thumb on her nose as well, removed it, and then replaced it with her other thumb. And offer one of my own. My mission was a neutral part of my species' digestive process. I had no idea that it would have that effect on him. Indeed, intoned the Greft. We thought that you had administered some form of drug at first, but our investigation has assured us that the emission was, in fact, natural. We believe that neither you nor we could have anticipated the effect it would have on the graft biology. Ambassador Oolong pressed the thumb to his nose. Your apology is accepted. Does this mean that the Lord Regent is willing to reopen negotiations? Ambassador Hill inquired. Perhaps, 
allowed the Grav. You might be interested to know how the Prince Regent and the Governess of Grecht were able to, uh, find common ground uh, during the incident. Neither party any longer objects to joining of houses. That's excellent news, said Ambassador Hill. Perhaps we can resume the talks tomorrow. The next day would be preferable, the Grefton tone. But yes, the peace talks can resume. The day after tomorrow is, Ambassador Hill agreed. Is there anything else I can do for you? There is one thing, Ambassador Oolong struggled to control his expression. The Lord Regent has expressed interest in the Ambassador's digestive emissions. He has requested some uh, samples for, um... The Hoth Ambassador lost control, face contorting into a grimace. Experimentation? We'll see what we can do, Ambassador Honeypot said judiciously. She ran three fingers down her cheek. Strength and honor to you, Ambassador. Ambassador Hill didn't speak, but copied the gesture. Strength and honor to you both, the Grafton intoned. He ended the transmission. Joe let out a breath he didn't know he'd been holding. That went well, Vanessa nodded. I suppose it did. Vanessa, she met his eyes. Joe stared back, stealing his courage. He was a war veteran and a member of the diplomatic corps. He could do this. Would you like to, um, join me for dinner? No. Her voice was firm. Oh? Joe's shoulders sank. He should have known better. I'm sorry if I... No. Vanessa cut him off. Now that I've got you figured, I'm not giving you the chance to pull out. She stood. I'm going back to my quarters and you're coming with me. She pushed a button on the desk phone. Giuseppe? Yes, Ambassador? The senior assistant answered. Peace talks will resume the day after tomorrow. We are calling it a night. She clamped a hand over Joe's shoulders when she saw he was about to object. In the morning, I'm going to need five jars with sealable lids and a burrito. Yes, Ambassador. Vanessa gave Joe a considering look, then pressed the button again. <sighs> Make it two burritos. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1819. Story number one. Happy Valentine's Day, written by Ack1308. Sir, can we talk together? I need the viewpoint of another. Dasa turned to see Kala hurrying towards him. He paused to wait for her, despite the fact that she was an ongoing romantic liaison with Harry Coulson, the station's human tech. She always had time for him. All the station crew were bipedal and at least semi-mammalian so it wasn't unusual for cross-species relationships to go this far. Dasser himself was spending nesting time with Galassa, a flightless ape, so he had no judgment to make on Kala's choices. Where he and most of the others had to pause and reconsider was the fact that she had chosen Harry. There was nothing wrong with Harry Coulson as a person and a technician. He was impressively good at his job, and when he encountered something he didn't know, he could often figure out a workaround. Dasser enjoyed spending time with him and listening to his stories of growing up on Earth, however wildly they might have been exaggerated. As a sole human on the station, he was neither snobbish nor arrogant, but actively tried to fit in with everyone else's needs and wants. The sole problem was that Harry was a carnivore, a member of a species that had actively hunted and killed other living creatures and eaten their flesh. Even now, it was said they preferred the flesh of the domesticated animals that were raised to adulthood and slaughtered before being prepared for ingestion of a synthesized food. Harry himself 
had stated on more than one occasion that he could always tell the difference, and that synth food was less satisfying. But still, in order to reduce worry amongst other species on the station, he chose to eat synth food instead of ordering in actual pieces of once-living creatures. Everyone had been more than a little surprised when Kalur had expressed an interest in a member of the only carnivorous species in the Galactic Union. But she had persisted despite the concern of others and appeared happy within the relationship. Until now, of course. What is the matter? asked Dessa. Is Harry well? Harry is healthy and happy, Kalur said. But uh, he has done something today that confuses and puzzles me. Harry is a human. Dessa reminded her as if she did not know that already. He does many things that uh, confuse and puzzle us. Oh, I understand most of his ways by now. Kalur tossed aside the comment like yesterday's orders. But he did something today that he has never done before. You see, today's date on Earth, allowing for relativistic differences, is apparently a day of bonding between those who are romantically attracted to each other. Dessir tilted his crest. Well, uh, that sounds remarkably wholesome. Perhaps we should institute it for the whole station. Where is the concern? The concern is how it is demonstrated. Dessert handed him a sheet of pressed fibers that had been folded over, with words and images inscribed on it, apparently using ordinarily marking pens. He took it, noted the odd symmetrical shape drawn in the red and the front, took curves at the top, a point at the bottom, then opened it and read the words, To Kalur, be my valentine, Harry. What is Sir Valentine? She grimaced. He tried to explain, but all I really understood was that it was a word for someone who is loved and loves in return. There is a historical context, but he didn't wish to go too deeply into it. <sighs> Sounds complicated, but not too bad. Dessert wasn't surprised about Harry not wanting to go into the historical context. A lot of human history had been marked as being off-limits to most galactic union species, due to the immense amount of bloodshed and horror they had inflicted on one another. He'd once watched a performance of one of their greatest love stories and been horribly traumatized by the fact that both had died at the end. This is quaint and cute, but I do not see what the problem is. The problem is this. She took the folded cardboard back and tapped on the odd sigil on the front. Do you know what this is? He studied the image more closely. Although hand-drawn, it showed attention to detail in both the sides were matching each other. I am afraid I don't. It's a symbolic imagery of a human heart. His brain stuttered to a halt before getting back on track. What? A vital organ? He gave you a picture of one of these vital organs? He belatedly recalled that red, the color of the image, was also the color of human blood. Yes. She looked down at the card. He said it was symbolic of him handing me his actual heart. This raised questions to Sir wasn't sure he wanted to ask. Can, um... Can they survive without their hearts? No, not usually. She stared at him. What does it mean? Dessur didn't want to get this wrong. What does Harry say it means? That he loves me. She looked as though she wanted to be reassured. Then I would take it in the spirit that it was given and not ask any questions that might raise worrying answers. He gestured towards the card in her hand. And if he ever shows signs of wanting to perform surgery on his own heart, uh, inform the medbay at once. Yes, I will do that, she paused. 
Should I, I, I make a card for him as well? We consider the question. No, it's best not to get it wrong. That's a good point. I'll just tell him I love him. Probably for the best. Uh, he is a good man. I know. Just very strange at times. Thank you for listening to me. Anytime. She hurried off, leaving Desir to his thoughts. Who gives someone a picture of their vital organs as a gesture of affection? Humans are bizarre. End of story. Story number two. Uniformly human. Written by Rosie013. Nilta was bored. Dad was talking with another grown-up again, and she couldn't run off and play with him, holding her hand so tightly. It shouldn't have been a big deal. She had promised not to do so again after the last four times. But this time, Dad held firm. Literally. Pouting wasn't working either. Her dad was deeply engrossed in whatever boring stuff grown-ups talked about, to care about her miserable predicament. There didn't seem to be much else of interest around the food court either. Other sapiens ordering or sitting to eat after busily shopping. Probably for toys, Nolta thought. Why couldn't she get more toys? It could help with the boredom. Unexpectedly, something interesting caught her eye. A strange alien had just started to order from a nearby food shop. It was yellow, not people-colored tan. Not like the sunshine yellow, like yellow yellow. Like it glowed yellow, sort of. Tall as dad, blue legs. Oh, it was tan-colored. It wasn't skin that was yellow. It was wearing protective clothing. That made more sense. But why? What did it need protecting from? Why was it so brightly yellow? Then an alien appeared, also yellow. It was a different sort. Nilta was sure that the same species had to have the same number of legs, but it was also mostly wearing the same thing. Blue leggings, yellow thorax covering the new edition of white oversized hat. It helped the first yellow stranger pick up the mountain of food it had ordered and carried it off to an entire table of yellow ones. In the dullness of everyone else's muted colors, they practically lit up the room like sunshine. They must have slipped in while she was watching the first yellow person. What was this? Dad would know. Her tugging became frantic as she tried to get his attention. An explanation for the bizarre group. After several eternities, Dad finally looked down at Nilta long enough to follow her gaze and understood what he's bugging his daughter. Humans, all of them. But they're different people, Dad. Who are they? Why are they here? What are they doing? No, sweet one. They are not human species. They are all human identifying. Being human has nothing to do with one species. It's how they behave, merged into one group as they were raised from the same clutch. Even their hivers' uniforms match. No one else in the whole galaxy takes in another people as wholeheartedly as the humans do. They are probably a work gang of some sort, and to your last question, they're eating lunch. Yellow humans, huh? They were interesting. But her dad knew that look. Don't bother them, or they will take you in too. He laughed, and he went back to this boring adult conversation. But the seed of caution had been planted in Nolta's young mind. As she watched, she noticed everyone else was keeping a respectful distance from the small group. Maybe there was more truth to dad's warnings than she had first thought. It was sometimes hard to tell if dad was joking around or not. She knew from her schooling already that bright colors usually meant danger of some sort. 
the uniformed humans were about done with their meal when another different brightly colored creature emerged into the food hall. It was short, broad, dressed similarly to the other humans, and orange. Very, very orange. Like if Nilta had shined a light up close to and not yet fully ripe fruit, but even brighter. A different sort of human, maybe, or from a different group. It walked straight up to the yellow humans, angrily shouting words she knew that she wasn't allowed to say, before being immediately surrounded by a group of yellows. Then, without fanfare, they all left together as though nothing had just happened. What? No one even tried to stop them taking the orange human. As the general hubbub of chatter resumed over the muted crowd, she realized Dad was right. They would take you in if you weren't careful. Nilta knew bright colors meant danger, and all the different humans were the brightest people that she had ever seen. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1820 The Creator's Visit, written by Vox Corp. Of all the infinite species I have created amongst the endless universe, humanity stands out. Each and every creation is unique and wondrous, none more so than humanity. Each has prospered, many have long since fallen, but not humanity. They were my first hyper-intelligent creation, a test to see what such a species would be capable of. The feats such as species could achieve were beyond my wildest dreams. It took them only 300,000 years to conquer their planet, a thousand more to take over their star cluster, a thousand more to take over the galaxy. Such feats were uncommon, but not unheard of. Nothing noteworthy in the infinite scheme of things. The way they did it, however, I've never seen it before or since. Big stick diplomacy is what they call it. Endless hatred towards their enemy. Boundless love for their allies. By forming pacts and agreements, they made half the galaxy their protectorates. The other half received the big stick. In the human year 4249, the first galactic war began. Their weapons were beyond anything someone could see in their most terrible nightmares. Yet they only ever hit what they were aimed at. Quasar guns that could eradicate entire solar clusters were made precise enough to swat a fly out of the air without harming anything else. Bombs made of strange matter capable of eliminating the entire universe were able to destroy only a single ship before half annihilating and becoming a harmless as space dust. Case in point, they were an industrially brutal yet caring bunch. Empathy was always put above anything else. Laws of war and life were strictly enforced, yet they could snap in an instant and destroy entire species with the press of a button. I left them after this war. I decided that I wanted to be able to see how the species progressed through the ages with surprise and suspense. For a million years I have waited for this moment, the day I once again visit humanity. Tremendous force was being applied to the hull of the USS Sagittarius A. Each second, four million light railgun shells slammed into its shields. Projected reports indicated only two hours before the shields would collapse. Captain, why don't we link up with the rest of the fleet? We won't last forever like this. The first officer, Tylus, yelled, straining to make his voice heard over the groaning of the hull. 
Because this is more fun. Prepare the boarding pods for launch. I want a squad of marines sent to each vessel assaulting us. The captain screamed back. His grey eyes filled with glee, arms darting around excitedly from monitor to monitor, firing random weapons into empty space. But we don't have enough boarding pods, Tylus protested with the whine. How? There have to be at least two million pods on the ship, Captain Bobby shot back. How could we not have enough? There were well over 30 million light corvettes swarming us out there. More keep coming in by the second. This is only wave one. We need to pull back to the rest of the fleet. No! We will board as many ships as we can. Bobby looked over the hologram of his ship. 1,000 miles long, 3,000 miles wide. It was the biggest ship available. It carried millions of weapons, billions of crew, and a whole lot of explosives. He scoured the hologram for useful information. Anything that could help make the battle last longer. Before he noticed something... There are boarders on deck 250, in hangar 3201. Put it out over the intercom. Okay, replied Tylus, clearing his throat and switching on the intercom. Intruders on deck 250, hangar 3201. Deal with them swiftly. The cackle of the speakers died out, once again replaced by the drumbeat of gunfire rocking the ship. Bobby looked out the window of his bridge to see the battle unfold. Thousands of quasar guns streaked across the void, swatting away any ships foolish enough to fight the behemoth spacecraft. Each second thousands of ships were destroyed, only for thousands more to take their place and keep the cycle going. Only a light year away, an even bigger battle was raging. The forces of the Terran Krieg clan were sparring with the Sagittarius shields. Over a trillion ships were fighting in the void beyond Sol and Alpha Centauri. Just as Bobby began to yawn from exhaustion, the thud of the hull ceased. His eyes jolted open once more as he turned to look over his viewport. Then, suddenly, the power went out completely, before coming back on once more seconds later. Hey, Titus, what was that? I have no idea, but everyone stopped shooting. What? Why? Something big is tearing into space-time right here. Sensors are picking up a major extra-dimensional anomaly. I think I can see it. Purple mist and exotic particles streamed into the uninhabited area of space-time near the Sagittarius. Gargantuan streaks of warp lighting filled the void as a great rip formed between the higher dimensions and the area around them. This thing is a Class 10. Nothing entering our space has ever been above a Class 7. Uh, what is that supposed to mean? This thing is from the highest existing dimension. It is for all intents and purposes. Hold powerful. Good God! God, might not be far off. When I visited once again, I was shocked to see human fleets awaiting me on the other side. They appeared to have been fighting a great battle right before I had arrived. But once again, partially unleashing my omniscience, I deduced that I was right. Surprisingly, however, I was confused. They were not fighting over anything, nor were they fighting with any regard for their own survival. Even more shocking, a battle multitudes bigger in scope was raging on and a light year from me. Human ships were trading blows with human ships, but I detected no deaths. Every second, billions of ships were annihilated. Trillions of humans should have been dying. Even when scouring the consciousness of the entire universe, I detected not a single human death. The ships around me seemed to come out of their trance. They quickly organized into a singular fleet around the truly magnificent ship. They began to move away from me while also training as many weapons as possible on me. 
Were this any other species, I wouldn't have batted an eye towards these weapons. But something about these guns unsettled me. It soon dawned on me that these weapons were ninth-dimensional hypersiphons, channeling entire universes of energy from the infinite stalls of the ninth-dimensional space, warping it around and through a back hall, then turning it into a beam that could rip through anything less than a god. Luckily for me, that just so happens to be me. Then I decided to contact them everywhere. All the devices, connections, brains, consciousness. I said a few words, but they didn't seem to get the message. Hello, my creation. It is me. I could sense that most of humanity thought of this as a mundane hack on communication servers. Before the video feeds of me floating in space reached them. Needless to say, the image of a star-sized human figure floating in space moving and glowing bright with raw energy, changed the minds of many a human. Mere seconds later, all the light in the universe was bottled up by ships jumping into beauty. I could sense, however, communications were being jammed. The great mass of ships began to part. In their face came a ship of truly gargantuan proportions. The ship they called the Seventh Seal began to bear down upon me. I was shocked to hear the communications of the Tenth Dimensional Space Entity, state your intentions, or be destroyed. I need not do as you say very well, but I warned you. A weapon I had not yet seen fired upon me. A great wave of pain washed over me, a sensation I never felt in all my infinite years of existence. Luckily for me, being all-powerful and all, it didn't kill me, and I quickly disabled the weapon through my will. Do not try that again, or I will do more than shut down your weapons, human. State your intentions, then. I observe my greatest creations. As of now, I've observed nothing but hostility. Why should I believe you? Get the hell out of here! Then I felt a great force being applied to me, as if I was being dragged out of this universe forcefully, by some power I couldn't overcome. I was sent back through my roof from where I came, and I was for the first time astonished. I was all-powerful, all-knowing, and yet they still managed to evict my first form from their space. They must not know I'm omnipresent, because they didn't, couldn't truly evict me. I willed myself back into their universe. I warned you. I cast destruction incarnate towards their entire fleet. All their countless ships were destroyed in an instant. I then went directly to Earth. Once again, I was astonished by the lack of any death. I opened up all the barriers to my intellect. I needed to know. That's when I realized. Humanity has reached its full stage 10 potential. Their consciousness exists alongside me in the 10th dimension. Like me, they cannot be killed, cannot be destroyed. This was not my doing. Yet they had somehow made themselves able to uplift themselves to higher planes. While still living in the 3rd dimension. Bobby, what happened? Asked Bobby's father. I think God destroyed my ship, he responded. How did he do that? He just did. I swear, look at your neuro news. His father's face turned from humid to stoic very swiftly. His mouth opened slightly as he muttered a single word. Huh. He collected his thoughts before saying, I'll join you in the next battle. I want to see this myself. Awesome. Bobby yelled as he stepped back into the Concho tube. His mind was transferred back into another ship. This one is slightly smaller, but in the same area. He looked up at the impressive figure. For all intents and purposes, it looked just like him. Human in all ways, but power and size. Once again, the mass of ships returned around me, 
this time communicating with me freely. I answered quadrillions of questions, all from people who had nothing meaningful to ask. They kept on asking, Are you God? To which I always replied, I am your creator, but you choose if I am your God. Not one person asked him where did he go after death. In fact, it seemed as if death was a concept that humanity knew nothing of. He wondered what they called this needless slaughter, if not death for the sake of death. The answer he got surprised him once more. This war was a birthday party. Every child born on this day was offered a free day of battle. They were given ships to command, and all of their friends could come along with them. This battle was simply a massive party. No one died. No one was injured. This entire battle of trillions upon trillions of ships was for children's amusement. Not just that. These were real ships made of real matter. The humans, however, seemed to never run out. I once again opened myself up and found that they extracted matter from higher, infinite dimensions, and that the multiverse itself. They did all of this for kids who were born on a specific day. They did it yesterday, and they would do it tomorrow. Humanity, my greatest achievement, is insane. Yet they are immortal and on par with me. They will be here forever, the same way that I will. They have become gods in their own right. Nothing can ever or will ever trouble them. For they are eternal. They have reached untold heights and untold lows. I'm glad that I came back to visit humanity. For now, I know the true potential of all the life I create. Endless walls in outer space, all in the name of a good time. End of story. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.